submitted for your approval, a joke. Two writers, a pop idol, and a lawman walk into a bar. The punchline of this joke, a podcast. The title of that podcast, L.A. Meekly. The hosts, two nobodies. One, a dork with glasses. They're broken. The other, a balding alcoholic. For every drop he drinks, another strand of hair lost. To his youth. The outcome of these two buffoons' endeavors, disappointment. Hey, 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 they're not that bad. Have you heard their episode on food? Maybe if more people gave them a chance, they'd see they weren't that bad. Maybe if you gave your mouth a chance to shut up, you'd realize the stupidity of the words you're saying. Consider this. I sever your spine with a saber the size of a salami. Why don't you put your money where your mouth is, and your mouth where it belongs? My ass. Truce. 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 The supreme irony of this podcast? Nobody's listening. The voices are going out there. And nobody's downloading. A strange story like this could happen only in one place iTunes. Hello. 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 Hello there. Hello there. Hello. Hey. Hello. <laughs> hey, it still works. Hello, and welcome to episode 14. I want to say 14, yeah. Of sure. LA Meekly, the first full feature length episode of 2015. Not to be confused with episode 14, The Phantom Menace. <laughs> so. I can't stop doing Rod no, Serling. I, I enjoy it too much. I feel like I have authority when I do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're back. You thought you'd seen The Last of Us. And uh, you celebrated. You threw confetti in the air. But we're here cleaning you up the a confetti. Big, you dropped a big ball on Times Square <laughs> thinking we were under it. That wasn't us. Nope. Decoys with wigs. <laughs> I keep doing stop it. Stop doing so Rod Serling. <laughs> doing it. The first full feature length episode of 2015. Yeah. And the first uh, listenable episode of all time. It's already shaping up to be that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're already batting 100. Is that something? <laughs> sure. Sure it is. If you're talking about bats, it is. There's 100 bats, and they're batting. 100 bats in a cave is a Batman full of bats. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by... Kraft Cereal. Kraft is not a cereal. It makes macaroni and cheese, but they're giving it a try. This episode, we're going to be talking about people who came to Los Angeles who were famous elsewhere. Mm-hmm. They had a brief stay here, and well, some of them had a brief stay here. The first person I'm going to talk about, author William Faulkner, who oh. came to Los Angeles in 1932 to write screenplays. Did you know he wasn't famous for writing screenplays? He was actually famous for being a novelist of Southern Gothic fashion. No. I, people mm. don't get famous for that. You Two know people you get did. famous? Doing blow at the Chateau Marmont. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I did it. That's how my father did it. <laughs> That's how my whole clan got famous. Just doing a line off of the hand that that uh, the Rocky statue is presenting. <laughs> Instead of Rocky, it was just a mound of sweet Colombian white powder. <laughs> they both have their hand out for Coke. <laughs> Why do you think it was right across the street? So let's set up this scene a little bit. Mm-hmm. Okay. Southern Belle. Southern Belle, <laughs> mustached William Faulkner. <laughs> Hollywood has just introduced sound into their films, which was not a big thing before. 
and studios were clamoring for new writers because now that talkies were emerging, the characters needed to say stuff. <laughs> so that had to happen now. We can't just have room tone <laughs> for two hours. Writers were being pulled in from all directions. They were getting writers from the publishing world. They brought people in who were known on uh, the Broadway stage. They were bringing in young novelists to come in and start writing these new scripts that they needed for movies, which were they were just pumping out movies. Between 1932 and 1955, Faulkner accumulated about four years in our city as a screenwriter, but he hated Hollywood. <laughs> he hated the Hollywood system. He hated Los Angeles as a city, and he did not take the work very seriously. <laughs> it was just the way he made money. What kept him coming back, though, was his inability to make money as a novelist. Although he was writing like some of the best literature there was, he didn't make a lot of money from it. But he was making money from the movies. He was very bitter about this, of course. When you put your, you know, all your attention on one thing, and then you have to come and write something for Shirley Temple, it's not that easy. <laughs> so he wrote the Animal Crackers song. Yes, he did. <laughs> I was, I was really hoping he would start singing it in a southern accent, but I, I'm just gonna say yes. Well, let me. Um, <laughs> for some reason, I can't. All I, I can't think of any other accent than wherever Rod Serling's from. Yeah, I know. Moon. It's 1931. Faulkner's first five books, which included the classics The Sound and the Fear and As I Lay Dying, had an average sale of about like 2,000 copies per title, which is okay. It's not that great. His sixth and latest book, Sanctuary, enjoyed a slightly better run and was received a little bit better than most of his works, which were usually met with like indifference, if not... Some people really admired his work, but not enough. A lot of people were Suddenly really... Suddenly, he's my favorite writer. He's just so <laughs> relatable. <laughs> but Sanctuary was written with a different motive than other novels so we have to backtrack some in the late 1920s faulkner managed well with not bringing any serious income in he didn't really concern his novels with that one and it kind of shows it's it, their works of passion he did a lot of odd jobs around his hometown which was oxford mississippi he was doing like house painting and carpentry a lot of like handyman work he was also rum running <laughs> off the gulf off the gulf coast did he do rum raisin yeah he did rum raisin <laughs> rum running rum raisin he was rum also tum working tum. on shrimp tum tiger what <laughs> <laughs> This is keep Did making you just him, say he was working on shrimp? He was working on a shrimp trowler. He was like working Forrest on sh- Gump? Is, like, he for, is he the inspiration? For he Forrest? was the inspiration for Forrest Gump. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the kind of ways that he was making money in the 20s, and it didn't really bother him. He I enjoyed it. Like This was life experience, which was feeding his novels. But in 29, he married a woman named Estelle Franklin, who already had two kids, and he needed to be the financial support for everybody. So this is the setting in which Sanctuary was written. Although it was a book that was well-respected, it was meant to bring in a prop. Profit. By early 1931, Sanctuary gets published and a fairly large number of people were buying it. That's great and everything. But six months after it was published, his publisher, Harrison Smith, went bankrupt, meaning Faulkner received practically nothing from the royalties of his book. Sanctuary was controversial, so it was getting noticed and people were really curious about it. And of course, Hollywood felt the rumbles that Sanctuary was making because it was controversial. It sold enough for them to know that people were interested enough in the title and his name attached to the title. Faulkner managed to sell the rights to Sanctuary to Paramount and along with that he managed to secure himself a job writing the screenplay for it. He met with an agent named Leland Hayward in the autumn of 1931 and in December of that year Hayward and Sam Marks who was the head of MGM Studios story department uh, agreed that Faulkner would be useful on the lot so they decided to secure him a contract and send him to Culver City. So now that it was becoming official Faulkner really didn't like the idea of coming to California. He had agreed to write an original story for Tallulah Bankhead. (laughs) 
who I only know from that one episode of I Love Lucy, but that's good <laughs> enough to know, to know that I liked Hulu Bankhead, but nothing came of that. Mm-hmm. 1932, he was still counting on the money from the sales of Sanctuary to kind of bail him out of his situation in Hollywood. He thought he'd still get out of the contract. So he purchased a house and some land. But Harrison Smith, who was his uh, publisher, was going into involuntary bankruptcy. And because of that, the $4,000 that was due to Faulkner was not becoming. So Hollywood had to be done. So just imagine being dragged into Hollywood. <laughs> That's exactly what happened to William Faulkner. It's May of 1932. Faulkner makes his first of many visits to the dreaded Los Angeles, California. He must have left his southern charm at home because by many accounts, Faulkner was seen as just off-putting. Physically, he was Isn't a little... Isn't that the southern charm? That, <laughs> I've never met a lot of people from the south, but I'm going to go say... <laughs> oh, we've met plenty. <laughs> Physically, he was just a little bit over five feet. He was a really small guy. He was usually sporting a tweed suit with a pipe in his mouth, clenched between his teeth. He was reserved, borderline rude. A lot of people said his southern drawl presented a problem to people as well because of his low tone and he had a a really thick uh, Mississippian accent. It was really hard to make out what he was saying and sometimes you'd prefer not to know what he was saying (laughs) because he was so... uh, Apparently he was mean to some people. The thing about witty people, which he was, is that you can use that wit as a weapon when need be and Faulkner upon arrival in California was like an animal out of his element. I know exactly what that's like. (laughs) He edited and he said that 40 minutes later. He had to edit that in. He was very off-putting when he first came to California and he was really aloof. It only got worse, not worse, but he became more of a recluse. So like around people, he was aloof and he learned to not be aloof. He just stayed away from everybody instead of being off-putting at a party. He just, oh, I'm not going to go to the party. (laughs) Throughout his time in Hollywood, he remained distant, spent a lot of time alone and was usually drinking heavily, the stuff of legends. So he comes to Hollywood and starts at the very top, MGM. A lot of other people like Nathaniel... President of MGM. (laughs) Give that man the biggest office. (laughs) We really need a southern bent. (laughs) Other authors like Nathaniel West who wrote uh, The Day of the Locust, which is about Hollywood. He also read... um, Very misleading title, by the way. Yeah. You were really waiting for the locust to come in. I thought it was biblical. (laughs) Moses isn't in this. (laughs) But Homer Simpson is. (laughs) Nathaniel West, when he started, he had to scrape at the bottom. He was working at like Republic Studios. Faulkner came right in. That's in in Studio City. What is Republic Studios? Republic Studios. Is it really? Yeah, I've been there. Really? Tell me about it, please. Well, they've got these things. They're called sound stages. Uh Uh-huh. And they have little garf garf carts. Simon and Garf Garden. Garf Kunkels. <laughs> and they have a parking lot. Oh, really? Tell me about the parking lot, please. Oh, Greg. It's where the place where dreams go to park. <laughs> MGM at the time was creating the films with the most pretensions to culture, and they were also handling their finance as well because, as you know, early 30s, the Depression was running through, <laughs> it was running its course, and MGM and Warner Brothers were the only ones that were spared from bankruptcy. That being said, it was still a bad time to come to Hollywood and look for a job. <laughs> and while indeed he was a, a famed author, Faulkner's contract with MGM MGM wasn't especially grandiose or even uncommon. He was to make $500 a week for a six-week trial period. But this was also, as Faulkner would say, more money than he'd ever seen and more money than he thought was in the state of Mississippi. But how did it sound when he said it? This is more money. <laughs> this, is, this is more money than I have ever seen. <laughs> Golly. So, Shazam. <laughs> Goober. <laughs> Just wait till Goober hears about this. Goober Faulkner. <laughs> Judy, Judy, Judy. <laughs> Judy, 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 Judy. He knew Judy, Judy, Judy. He's desperate for money. He has a huge overhead yeah, in Mississippi. I relate to him so much. He's the Bradbury of his days. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing they had in common was that they wanted money. <laughs> God, why do we keep doing Rod Serling? Because it's fun. Because it's, it's fun. Because it's Can't fun. Can't we do another TV host? Fun, fun, fun in the sun. 
Let's do Pat Sajak now. Okay. I can't do Pat Sajak. Matt! No, I don't know. Wanda Sykes. Do Johnny Carson. I know you can. <laughs> yeah, weird Faulkner. <laughs> so he's desperate for money, and he finally finds someone to give him more money than he's ever seen. So of course he quits within a week. <laughs> he found Hollywood so unsettling, so unnerving that he fled the studio in a panic and spent days wandering the wilds of <laughs> Death Valley, apparently. What? Yeah. <laughs> He left the Death Valley, you know, the most desolate spot on Earth where, like, the Manson family went to go from being dirty. They weren't there yet. They weren't there yet, but they would go. It's not like Death Valley changed. It's not like, oh, yeah, no, it's very nice. No, it's Death Valley. So he was just wandering Death Valley. Like Lawrence of Arabia going through Death Valley. I haven't seen Lawrence of Arabia. It was kind of like Paris, Texas. I've seen Paris, Texas. He was just wandering with a nice little hat on. There's a Paris in Texas now. God damn it. We obviously don't know anything about the South. Eating po'boys and oh my god, muffalados, yes. <laughs> muffalados. He ended up coming back to the studio within a week, and everything was forgiven. So he's back. He came back enlightened. He talked to a, <laughs> a lizard that told him how to write screenplays. I'm married to this cactus. Now. <laughs> Here's the word: <laughs> final draft. <laughs> That's all you need. I wrote seventy pages on the sun. I wrote it in sand. We gotta go quick. They sat him through a screening of the kind of films that MGM actually produced, and he fled the room once again (laughs) in a panic. He went back to Death Valley. Supposedly, he loves saying, Jesus Christ, it ain't possible. (laughs) Supposedly. That sounds like a good review to me. Another tale was that Faulkner was sitting through a screener of a film, and he gets up and he asks the projectionist about halfway through to just stop it, because he already knows how it ends. How did Um, he feel about Leo the Lion? He did invitations of him all day. <laughs> rar. 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 I say rar. I say golly rar. None of this can go out. No. Another story about Faulkner that I read was that he approached Sam Marks, who was the, uh, like I said, the MGM studio department head, or the story department, I mean. And he was asking him, if, if are we the ones making Mickey Mouse? Because I have a lot of uh, ideas for this series. <laughs> Adorable. I don't know it's if that's true, cute. but it's very... What, what would his ideas be? Like, I'm just curious if that's true. Uh, Mickey comes from a long line of plantation owners. <laughs> <laughs> They've fallen on hard times, but the South will rise again, said Goofy. <laughs> During this time at MGM, he worked on a total of nine projects, doing everything from patchwork to treatments, and he wrote, uh, I think, a f- one feature-length a screenplay. The first was based on a short story of his own called Turnabout, which was later titled Soldier's Pay. It was directed by Howard Hawks, which is really important because Hawks and Faulkner uh, bonded on this and became friends for like the rest of Faulkner's life. Hmm. Uh, Howard Hawks was a powerful ally in all of this, which is really important as well because he would continually bring Faulkner back. People can disregard Faulkner. Faulkner could hate Hollywood, but Hawks was there to bring him back in, which is really good. <laughs> he knew where he liked to hide in Death Valley. <laughs> <laughs> I know the rock he's talking about. <laughs> they were both men of great vision who needed to be in complete control to make their art flourish. And strangely, a weird coincidence, they both had younger brothers who died in freakish plane accidents. So they had that to bond over because I think... What a fun thing to bond over. I think a couple of their stories are about air pilots. So you can see them like meshing Mm. together well. Soldier's Pay would eventually become a movie called Today We Live, which is starring Joan Crawford. Although the film was an overall smash, Hawks admired uh, the dialogue and action scenes that Faulkner had added in and saw him as a valuable player in Hollywood. So that's what he always kept in mind, which is good because if Faulkner tarnished his reputation, he still had that one thing that he did right for Howard Hawks. So he could always like, remember, I'm not that bad. So it's... 1932, Faulkner's father had passed away, so he went back home to Oxford, Mississippi, and he starts to figure out that he can do writing from there, and then over long telephone calls, 
can get some work done from home and doesn't have to be in California. So he would travel to California for here and there, but really he would just stay in Mississippi as long as he could for months at a time. So Howard Hawks, when when Today We Live was all wrapped up, said, hey, if you ever need more work, just go ahead and knock on my door. He went ahead and approached MGM about making another thing. So they immediately sent him a paycheck for $600. This was in late 1932. And they gave him a raise. They gave him a slight raise, yeah. He he done not bad. He done not bad. And they continued to send him $600 a week until the May of 1933, which was a long time. That was several months. He continued to work at home, but he didn't really know what he was getting paid for. He was just turning very little in. It didn't really seem like he was doing anything. And then in May of 1933, he gets a telegram from MGM asking, where are you? And he's like, I'm home. Like, well, you got you need a report to New Orleans. Uh, go talk to this director, Browning. So he says, okay. And he, he even though from Mississippi to New Orleans is like a train ride, he said it apparently takes hours. It's pronounced Nolens. Uh, excuse me, Nolens. Um, <laughs> I'm going to smack your mouth with my hand. They direct him to take a, a plane to like Memphis and then go to New Orleans. The <laughs> long way. And he does this. It's, pro- it's pronounced Memphis. As angry as a person he was, as much as he didn't like Hollywood, he took directions very well. And he was very uh, obedient because he wanted to. He was a southern gentleman. He was a southern gentleman. And drunk. <laughs> he just didn't know better because he was drunk all the time. So he arrives in uh, New Orleans and he... Nolans. He finds uh, this director Browning, who's in a hotel room partying. And he's like, "Oh, hey, I'm here to start writing." He's like, "Oh, go and go talk to the continuity writer in a couple rooms down." So he goes over there, and he says, "Oh, uh, yeah, we're just writing dialogue, but uh, we're not ready to start yet. We don't really know what's going on. Go back, go talk to Browning. Tell him I tell him." So he goes back to Browning, says, "Well, he doesn't really know what he wants me to do." And then Browning's like, "Well, he let's go talk to him. Nah, get some sleep. We'll talk about it later." <laughs> Get some sleep. We'll talk about it later. Is a phrase that continually gets said on this three weeks of just partying and getting drunk, not really doing anything. And then finally, they get a uh, telegram. Browning and Faulkner have been fired by MGM because they've been partying and nothing got done, even though they didn't really have anything to work on. The continuing writer. Throw him to the lion. Throw him to the lion. The director Browning was, of course, Todd Browning, director of Freaks <laughs> and Dracula, which was a big success for Universal Studios. Referred to episode uh, twelve. 12, 12, 12, Monsters and the Nerds that Love Them is the title. Refer yes. to that episode if you want to hear about Todd Browning. Also, refer to all other episodes to just really get a context of where we're coming <laughs> from when we talk about Dracula. I mean, if you know Todd Browning's history, Freaks was the last thing he did. Like, he had so much, everyone's like, oh, he's the next best thing. He did Freaks and then they like, take him to Nolens and then that's it for him. <laughs> send him to Nolens. Send him to Nolens. Pretty much same thing with Faulkner. Just sort of like, just send him to Nolens. That's where the old Hollywood saying comes from. Send <laughs> Faulkner to Nolens. <laughs> he thinks he's done and he's kind of happy about it. He was content. He went to Hollywood to make money and he did. He was making a good profit. He was able to support his family. In 1934, he comes briefly back to Hollywood to work on Sutter's Gold. That's a Western. You're right. You must have seen it. What's it about? Uh, gold. Gold. Who's gold? Gold. Fool's gold. Yeah, Sutter's a fool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was to work with Howard Hawks in this, but then the project never went through. So they ended up working on something called The Road to Glory together. Is that a Western also? <laughs> no, it's a war movie. Um, this was in December of 1935, contracted by a freshly merged 20th Century Fox. Just merged, looking for writers, looking for new material, so they brought Faulkner on board. He was going to work for 20th Century Fox on and off till for like two years, 1935 to 1937. None of his work is really... Okay, two of his... Movies are kind of revered. He didn't had not Casablanca and Citizen Kane were. It was not that one. So during this period, he began to once again drink very heavily. He got on a three-week bender with a director named Nanali Johnson. I want to say Nunali Johnson. 
What a strange pairing of names. <laughs> he set out this big kind of grandiose red carpet arrival for Faulkner who showed up, took a flask out, which had tinfoil on top, tried to remove it, cut his finger, was stumbling, dropped a hat. His finger was bleeding beyond the point of sucking the blood and it was just dribbling out. So he- Call Todd Browning. <laughs> <laughs> so he grabbed his hat and was bleeding. His, he like used his hat as a like a blood dripper and then uh, continued to swig half the bottle oh, of whiskey. And then the guy, uh, Johnson, the director, Johnson was like let me have some of this if if this is the game we're gonna play let's do it so they went on a three-week bender together there's also another story bleeding the whole time (laughs) you gotta get that checked out it was that time of the year (laughs) there's also another story that he got drunk at a polo match with a borrowed pony uh try to go onto the field and then he fell off the pony and then passed out and that's a story that happened just a pony. during his time on Road to Glory. <laughs> While his drinking benches was going on about a year earlier, around 1936, his pay is cut. He was getting an increase, I guess, for Road to Glory because he was working on Hawks again. It went from 1000 a week to uh, it's about 750 per week. So he, so, he got- so he managed to bump himself up and then and go slowly go back down. back down. Next was working on a movie called Slave Ship. He got credited as story by, but he didn't. He himself admits that he didn't come up with, he didn't write the screenplay, nor come up with original material. He was at this point just claiming to be a uh, motion picture doctor and come in and just do like what I call patchwork, which is like, ah, this line is could be funny. I'm going to change the dialogue here and there. Just trying to get into Disney Studios. Exactly. And I think they added his name because they wanted to distinguish themselves by having great literary titan William Faulkner's name on the screen. <laughs> William Faulkner presents <laughs> Mickey on the choo-choo. <laughs> but a lot of people that watch the movie haven't seen it, but they claim that there's a real Faulkner-esque quality to it. It's a really strange movie about a mutiny on a slave ship starring Mickey Rooney. <laughs> is it really? Yeah, it is. The best person to represent the struggle of the Africans, Mickey Rooney. So after that, his work gets really spotty. He does here and there with Hawks as much as he can, but it's not unreliable, but Hawks isn't working that much. He doesn't need that much room for a screenwriter. So he only brings in Faulkner when he needs it. Faulkner does has no confidence in his ability to write screenplays, which is true. I mean, he, he's able to add a certain quality to the stuff, but like his writing is not going over well when it being said out loud. Like, he writes like for a... He's great on the page. He's great on the page, but trying to say his dialogue out loud, it's getting clunky. So people are just like, cross it out and just put something more simple. He's not a simple writer. Get rid of the accent. So to have him on your team of screenwriters was nice because overall he would add an element that was a nod. I'll get to that in a bit. But like individual full-length screenplays he was not good at. So you can kind of see the distinction between being a great novelist and being a great screenplay writer. Also, he didn't know what a movie was, so it was hard to... So it's 1936. He's still in Hollywood and he goes between Hollywood and Mississippi a lot. And he completes his novel called Absolvum Absolvum. What? Absolvum Absolvum. I think I'm saying it right. You can't be. <laughs> A-B-S-A-L-O-M. Absolvum, absolvum. He left California in August of 1937 to go back home because this book was getting revered. And he was hoping it would be the last time he'd ever see California again. Not so fast. Between 1938 and 1942, he published four books, which did reasonably well, but not well enough. He was going through money really fast because not only was he the sole support of his family, which was his wife, her two kids, and I think they had the kid of their own. He took care of his sickly mother. He took care of his, what the book calls his inept brother who lived on a ranch. She had to take care of him. And then his younger brother was married. Now Faulkner's taking care of his widow. 
so he's taking care of all these people plus the house that he lives in so he's continually asking for advances for or just wire me some money from his uh literary agents at some point he had 16 cents in his pocket he goes months without paying utilities that could last you a week back then you can buy chips you can buy a soda you can take a trolley ride you can watch a movie um that sounds so familiar end of 1942 was getting really desperate he had written novels again and it just 1942 from 38 to 42 he was writing novels he wrote four of them but it wasn't doing anything for him so he has to come back to hollywood 1942 but welcome back welcome welcome back back. dragging you back welcome back welcome back faulkner but the two movies he works on next are the ones that are like Hollywood classics. Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings and Dude, Where's My Car? Hawks brings him back to work on To Have and Have Not and The Big Sleep, which is one of my favorite movies. Both of them are um, Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart. Va, 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 voom and oh. hubba, hubba, <laughs> hubby. <laughs> Ernest Hemingway wrote To Have and Have Not and Howard Hawks was his friend and Raymond Chandler wrote The Big Sleep. But the thing about it is no one can really decipher who did what. They say on To Have and Have Not what he added to it. There's a character who keeps saying, um, was he ever bit by a dead bee? And it's like a sort of signal. If you can answer this question, uh, it means that you're you're on the in. They say he added that element and there's something, a quality that Howard Hawks really liked. The Big Sleep has a scene in it right at the beginning where he and the guy who's about to um, give him the money to do the investigation on who's trying to blackmail the daughter are in his greenhouse. And there's some, everyone keeps talking about this scene and how natural it feels. And a lot of people credit it to Faulkner, but really it was a lot of different writers. And one of the writers was Lee Brackett, who was one of the members of the LAFSS, the Los Angeles Science Fiction Society. Oh. Uh, look at that. Refer to whatever episode that was. The uh, same episode. The same episode, same episode that we couldn't figure out. Still don't know. Stop bringing it up, please. You're <laughs> making us look the fool. And she said that he, when she met him, this was 1942, it was a long time since he first arrived in Hollywood, that he was an almost caricature of Southern gentleman. Like he was so like overly polite to her. So our impressions of him aren't far off. Did he carry mint juleps everywhere he went? (laughs) He had to. And he wore that that Colonel Sanders suit that I just assumed. (laughs) There's pictures of him in 1944 in just like shorts, a pipe, sunglasses, and a typewriter sitting in the sun just looking miserable. That's unsettling. That's very unsettling. It's very unsettling. <laughs> so those are the two movies that he's credited with. But those are the ones that we still talk about. We don't talk about any of those that he was involved no. in. We all agreed not to. So he works on two more movies. In 1944, he strayed away from Howard Hawks and worked on a, a movie called The Southerner with Jean Renoir. Who? The French at this time really admired Faulkner's work, which was really special. And they really wanted Faulkner to, to have a hand in this. This might be the one that Faulkner was the most proud of. The last picture he did was with Howard Hawks. This was in 1955. In this time, he's going between Mississippi and... And, and California a lot. He's drinking a lot. He's stuck in a contract, so a lot of the times they don't want him leaving for that long. So he's just wandering around Beverly Hills. He goes on Musso and Frank sometimes and drinks himself a, a fool. But he would frequent Stanley Rose's bookstore, which was a place where it was kind of, I don't want to say underground, but a lot of writers would end up there. Dashiell Hammett was there uh, stopping bin and everyone would run into each other there. Anyways, he was just wandering around. He was miserable. 1944 and onward. He starts writing novels again. He attempts to write his big, big novel called A Fable uh, about Jesus Christ and apostles resurrecting as soldiers in World War One. It, it might be his worst novel, they say. Really? Yeah. That sounds like it's 
the only one that sounds interesting to me. <laughs> they bring him back. I guess he's still desperate for money for something with Howard Hawks called Land of the Pharaohs. I don't know if it ever made the light of day, but I know Hawks and Faulkner were miserable. And Faulkner's like, I don't know how pharaohs talk. Like, don't bring me aboard for this. He's writing a fable, right? And he wants to get out of his contract and he doesn't know how. He's contacting agents and stuff like, how are you going to get me out of this? Jack Warner's breathing down my ass. I don't want to go back to California. Well, Random House Publishing heard that he was writing something and they were very interested in it. So they bought him out of his contract in 1946. So that's pretty much it for Faulkner in Hollywood. In spring of 1955, though, they tried to contact him one more time to do uh, screenwriting work, which he declined. <laughs> and that was it. He was out of California forever for good. Good for him. Good for him. He's out. He broke free. He came in. He got his money. He was miserable. He drank a lot. <laughs> he uh, made some great stories out here. And I don't mean he wrote them. I mean, he was living them. And that's it for Faulkner in California. <laughs> Daryl Zanuck is shaking his fist at him as he crosses the state line. You'll be back <laughs> in movie form. <laughs> we own your image. The next time he turned the TV on, Foghorn Lakehorn was walking around like, something about this bird. My Mickey idea. <laughs> Who are you going to tell me about? I'm going to go with another old person. Is it someone we know? You might know him. We'll say his name, I'll know. His name is it up. Wyatt Earp. 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 Wyatt Earp. Earp. All right. His name's Wyatt. Sounds like burp. Erp. Wow, you got it. It's only been all I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Erp. 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 Wyatt Erp. Wyatt Erp. The man. The myth. The guy by the craft services table on the movie set. (laughs) What? Of Tombstone fame. Uh, Shut up. I'm not there yet. Wyatt Earp seems like a character from a time and place nowhere related to Los Angeles. But as we saw with William Faulkner, the strangest of bedfellows cozy on up to this city of angels. You're saying they were bedfellows? I'm not spreading any rumors, (laughs) but I am saying they were bedfellows. (laughs) An important part of Wyatt Earp's life was spent in L.A., that is to say, the end of his life. (laughs) What is your idea of Wyatt Earp? What is your image? Earp, sorry. What is your image of Earp? Leather vest, um, big mustache. Oh, God, keep going. He's got a giant badge. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And he's got spurs. A righteous lawman is the answer you have. <laughs> That's what you were supposed to say. Okay. A righteous lawman whose only responsibility is to good old-fashioned American justice. Like Walker, Texas Ranger? Yeah, but less realistic. <laughs> That's the image of him that we have Los Angeles to thank, but that was not always the case. So Wyatt Barry Stapp Earp. What's his name? What's that sound? Say it again. <laughs> Wyatt Barry Stapp Earp okay. was born March 19th, 1848 in Monmouth, Illinois. Earp's dad moved the family around a lot, searching for gold and silver mines to strike it rich. Earp's older brothers went off to fight for the Union in the Civil War, and Earp ran away several times to join up, but he was 13, so they kept <laughs> oh sending him back God. home. So at age 17, he left his family, moved to California to work for some train companies where they taught him how to box and gamble, okay. which are two essential. <laughs> things. Two things that every American legend needs to know how to do. <laughs> On November 24th, 1869, he returned to his family, who is now living in Lamar, Missouri, where he replaced his dad in the position of town constable, which is his first of actually just a few law enforcement jobs. Did he have to speak with a British accent if he was a constable? Yeah, he went around saying, what's all this then in the Old West? In the Old West time. <laughs> what's so then- all this then I say, I say. <laughs> he got wind of it. 
<laughs> this was also the first of many reinventions of his public image that he would stage. So a year later, Earp married the daughter of a local hotel owner. They got pregnant. She died of typhus. She took their unborn baby with her after... Dragged her, her into hell with her. That was <laughs> hey, mean. Hey, come yeah, on. That was mean. Come on. Typhus is... It's a silly disease, I know. <laughs> But that's no reason to condemn her to hell. <laughs> Any other reason, sure. So after her death, Earp seems to have gotten kind of disillusioned. Mm-hmm. He left Lamar and he just sort of wandered around from town to town, towing the line between law and criminal behavior. So he worked... Like Kung Fu. Yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> like this show Kung Fu. Yeah. What? <laughs> he worked as hired muscle. He was friends with prostitutes. On March 28th, 1871, prostitutes, they're going to hell yeah. with the typhus babies. We know that. So on March 28th, 1871, he was accused of stealing a horse in Van Buren, Arkansas, but he skipped town before they could arrest him. In October 18... 18- Who's going to arrest him but himself? He's not a lawman anymore. He gave up the law. He's not Kevin Costner anymore. <laughs> Open up your mind to a is new he, image, man. Is he Kurt Russell yet? Yeah. Yeah. So in October 1874, he actually helped authorities then catch another horse thief in Wichita, Kansas, Kansas, and was praised for his good work. So he became a policeman because he liked the feeling. He helped keep the cowboys under control. Again, reinventing himself. In 1876, he moved to Dodge City, Arkansas, where one of his brothers had opened up a brothel. And on May 19th, he became deputy town marshal, which he then parlayed to become city marshal by 1877. December 1879, he relocated yet again with his two brothers, Virgil and Morgan, and his dentist friend, John Henry Holiday, a.k.a. the good doctor. Holiday. (laughs) He was a dentist? He was a dentist. Isn't that weird? That is very weird. I knew so little about this, and I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, Doc, Doc Holliday, <laughs> the baddest man in the West, DDS. Your molars are really uh, molared. I don't know, dentist talk. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> they left town to try to find silver in Arizona in a town called Tombstone. So they didn't have much luck finding silver. <laughs> so Erp was forced to go. Why Why do I keep telling stories about people whose names I can't pronounce? I don't know. You're drawn to them. Your mouth sees a challenge and you're like, yeah, let's not jump all over that. <laughs> let's fail at this. <laughs> they didn't find any silver and he was forced to go back to being a lawman just to make some money. He joined the local police, which set in motion the events that he is now known for. Mm-hmm. The exact reason of why what happened happened, it's been lost to time because Erp never liked to talk about what happened in Tombstone later in life. And frankly... A lot of things that he told people were lies. Fantastic. Yeah. (laughs) So it might have been over new laws that were put down to tame the wildness of the West. Could have been about land control. The story that I saw most often was that a stagecoach was robbed in March 1881, and Earp set out to find the cowboys who did it. So he enlisted the help of a local rancher named Ike Clanton Mm -hmm. to nose around and rat out who committed the robbery. So Earp offered Clanton $6,000 if he got the names, but Clanton started becoming paranoid that Earp would spill the beans and tell people that he was helping a lawman rat on his fellow cowboys. So like any good cowboy does, he started drinking. (laughs) And that made him even more paranoid, and he started going around town bragging how he was going to kill one of Earp's men. So whatever events really led up to it, on October 26, 1881, it all boiled over at the OK Corral. The two parties consisted of Wyatt, his two brothers, which were Virgil and Morgan, Mm -hmm. and Doc Holliday in one corner. In the other, Ike Clanton, his brother Billy, and another brother duo, Frank and Tom McClory. So before anything happened, Clanton was warned of what was about to happen, (laughs) and he fled the scene. (laughs) So then a shot was fired, and then 30 seconds later, Billy Clanton... And both McClory brothers were dead. 
Wyatt's brothers and Doc Holliday were all injured, but Wyatt himself was unscathed, which oh, was not surprising because in all the shootouts that Earp had been in in his life, which were a lot, he was never hit by a bullet ever. Really? Never got hit by a bullet. So this became the most famous gunfight in Western history. It symbolized the tension at the time between the old Wild West and the efforts of the U.S. government to tame it with law and order. Right. Dun dun. At the... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> At the time, though, the people of Tombstone didn't see what happened as the noble event that you now see it. What they saw it as was a cop who went nuts and killed a bunch of their townsfolk. So on October 29th, 1881, Ike Clanton filed murder charges against Ooh. Urban Holiday, and they were arrested, put in jail for 16 days. But they eventually went to trial on November 29th, 1881. But they were acquitted because they were seen by the judge as acting within their capacities as lawmen. But that didn't stop the town of Tombstone from hating them. Most of all, Ike Clanton. So he wanted revenge for his brothers. So on December 28th, 1881, some hired goon ambushed Virgil Earp with a shotgun on his way home from a saloon and he shot him. But he survived, but he lost the use of his left arm for the rest of his life. Then Clanton struck again March 18th, 1822, when Wyatt and his other brother Morgan were playing pool and then two shots came out of nowhere and Morgan was dead. This is when Wyatt started to turn his back on the word of the law and became a force of vigilante justice. Two days after his brother was killed, Wyatt and his gang killed one of the suspects, Frank Stilwell. Mm-hmm. And then the next three weeks became known as the Vendetta Ride, as Earp and Holiday and their posse went out riding and killing whoever they thought was involved in the murder of his oh, brother. Great. So they killed Florentino, a.k.a. Indian Charlie Cruz, Curly Bill Brocious, and between two to 12 others, depending on whose story you believe. So then Earp, of course, was accused of these murders, so he fled Arizona for good. Oh, is that why he left? Yeah. Okay. Uh, he's a coward. <laughs> a murdering coward. Oh, murder and coward. Okay. Yeah. So from then on, Earp went around trying to strike it rich, pulling cons all around the West. He did gold mining in Idaho, Nevada, and Alaska. He was run out of Texas for painting a rock yellow and selling it as gold. Oh, my God. Yeah. Fantastic. No, no effort. <laughs> yellow. So eventually he made it to San Francisco where he met the woman who would become his partner for the rest of his Mrs. life. Mrs. Earp. Mrs. Earp. That was her name. What fate? <laughs> her name was Josephine Sarah Marcus, a.k.a. Sadie. In San Francisco, he would referee a boxing match between Robert Fitzsimmons and Tom Sharkey, which he would be accused of fixing. In, oh. in 1896, he went to court yet again, and this would become the biggest sports scandal until the World Series was fixed in 1919. <laughs> so Earp and Sadie around this time were also running gambling dens in San Diego and mining in areas around Nevada and in San Bernardino. But starting in 1855 until the end of his life, he would spend his summers living in Los Angeles. Look at that. Finally, the part of the story that's worth telling. A con man hiding out in Los Angeles? That's horrible. You might find this shocking. Don't say it then. All right, I won't okay, say, say it. it. I was interested. Say it. Hollywood's a lie. Oh, that hurt. Yeah. I bought one of those little snow globes that has the Hollywood sign and it snows. You saying that's a lie? Well, no, that happens. <laughs> Refer to episode whatever that is. <laughs> Refer to episode. Just listen to the monster one again. You'll get it. The Earps lived in at least nine different places around LA. Mm-hmm. I can confirm that in 1920, they lived at 4021 Pasadena Avenue, kind of near Dodger Stadium. Oh, really? So Sadie came from a very well-off family, so they mostly lived off the money her parents would send to them, but they still managed to be seen around town. The two of them, they would have dinners at what was once a swanky hangout spot for the rich and powerful and that is now Exposition Park. So they dine with the likes of Elias Jackson Lucky Baldwin. If that name sounds familiar, 
it shouldn't. <laughs> there was a Lucky Baldwin we've talked about before. Refer yeah. to episode blank. It's not the Lucky Baldwin who ran the failed dairy in the cursed Griffith Park, yeah. but it is the Baldwin of Baldwin Park. Oh, okay. So they would hang out with him. They had a dog named Erpy. <laughs> Are you sure it's not Harpy? Harpy, the dog. Harpy, the dog. So he even went native. He learned how to drive at age 70, which led to him being involved in some sort of road rage incident, which I could not get details on, and then a trip through the desert where he shot a bull for headbutting his car. Okay. Well, that's... (laughs) He asked for his insurance. Couldn't provide it. (laughs) So he shot him. Vigilante justice. (laughs) Also, when he said that there was a road rage incident, I just imagine he like crashed his car into a horse. (laughs) A horse was going mad. So there were several occasions where Earp was enlisted to help out the LA government when it was in need. In 1909, a bank owned by a man named Isaiah W. Hellman was beset by a mob of people who wanted to withdraw all their money because the rumor was that the bank didn't have any money left. Problem was, rumor was true. (laughs) So the bank didn't have any money to give back to them, which would have destroyed the bank if the people asked for it and done a lot of harm to the city. You might remember a similar thing happening in It's a Wonderful Life. (laughs) The mayor hired Earp, who showed up at the bank in a stagecoach filled with sacks filled with iron that he told everybody was a million dollars worth of gold. So he settled everyone's fear that the bank had no money, which it didn't. Liar. Yeah. Con man. A con man for the greater good, though. So the the interesting connection here, though, Hellman, whose bank it was, worked together with William Workman, who was the guy that bought the San Gabriel mission in 1846 and owned the Workman bank that Tiburcio Vasquez robbed. Wow. And even weirder, Hellman himself later actually bought Rapetto Ranch, where the whole Tiburcio Vasquez thing happened. Connections. Connections. Earp even went to work for the L.A. Philharmonic. He could play a beautiful oboe, <laughs> the instrument of the Wild West. <laughs> so he was working for the LAPD. Really? Yeah. So the some police some, department. Oh, that's what that means. Oh, I got it all I wrong. I thought it was the Pancake District. <laughs> so some people question these stories, yeah. but all signs point to them being true. The only problem is that there's no concrete records from the LAPD because they threw all their old files out a long time ago. So in those days. And only in those days, the LAPD wasn't above behaving outside the law. They're good now. They're good. They're solid individuals. Every single one of those crazy (laughs) people. All right, we said it. You guys can leave. (laughs) So a lot of times, criminals would flee to Mexico and elude the long arm of LA law. So the LAPD could work with the Mexican government to get the criminals extradited back into the U.S., but that process usually took several years. So in 1910, the LAPD hired ERP who was 62 at the time, and paired him up with an ex-detective named Arthur Moore King and paid them $10 a day to do what they needed to be done outside the law. They didn't want to know the specifics. They just wanted it done. I wanted to know the specifics. (laughs) (laughs) So the typical sort of thing that would happen would be a drug dealer or a rapist would flee to Mexico. Mm -hmm. Earp and his deputy, who was King, would then... His deputy was King. (laughs) They would then go to Mexico disguised as minors and track the guy until they found him. Then they would handcuff him, drag him to the border. Then Earp would cross into the U.S. while King stayed on the Mexico side with this criminal. He would take (laughs) off the handcuffs, push the guy across the border, and then Earp would grab him and officially arrest him under U.S. law. Wow. (laughs) And then they'd drag him back to L.A. and give him to the LAPD. And then Earp and King would go celebrate by drinking up and down Spring Street. (laughs) There's a lot of alcohol involved in these stories. This could have easily been a show. His biggest job came when police commissioner H.L. Lewis had Earp head a posse to protect some surveyors from the American Ioma Company Mm -hmm. that were going to the the Death Valley area. Oh, boy. Trying to find Faulkner. (laughs) Bring him to me. What does this book mean? I don't know. I just want to go around all these salt licks. So they went to 
Death Valley to stake some claims. So a confrontation did come, but it was settled when Earp shot a Winchester rifle at the feet of the claim jumpers and said, back off or I'll blow you apart or my name is not Wyatt Earp. And then there was no bloodshed, but this was Earp's last armed confrontation. He was 64 at the time. All he had to do was shout his name. Yeah. His last one. And shoot at their feet. (laughs) Blow their shins (laughs) off. So Earp even got up to his usual self uh, on the wrong side of the law in LA as well. In 1911, Earp had some sort of con running with some high rollers at the Auditorium Hotel, which was on the northwest corner of Fifth and Olive across from Pershing Square. It's now the gas company tower. Okay. But at the time, it was an extremely high-class hotel. He planned to work with a guy to con a few others out of several thousand dollars in a game of Pharaoh. But the guy, uh, he doesn't know how Pharaohs speak. (laughs) That's why the con didn't work. But the guy he was working with didn't want to be part of it, so he tipped off the LAPD, and on July 21st, the day the game was going to take place, the LAPD sent out their bunko squad to raid the hotel room, and they arrested the men. Earp gave his name as W.W. Stapp. (laughs) <laughs> but that alias did not hold up for very long. What's Especially the f- since they worked with the guy. <laughs> What's the W stand for? William. What's the other W, w stand for? Wyatt. William. <laughs> w stands for Wyatt. The other W stands for Earp, but the W silent. The problem was the police had raided the place before the game started, so the con never actually took place, so they had no case. So yep. all they could do was hold him for a $500 bail. Pull the boner. Yep. LAPD pull the boner. Yet again, the Bunko Squad. Bunko. <laughs> boner Squad. I like it. Earp maintained that it was just an accident that he was there. Mm -hmm. The story was in the LA Times and the Examiner. The Herald, though, which was more sensational, put it on their front page. Oh, cool. So LA was a place where a lot of Old West guys would come to live out their old age, and many of them were drawn to the newly born film industry, Earp included. Earp loved movies, which is very weird to think about. He would go all around town to see as many as he could. Most likely, many of them he watched in the downtown theater district. district. Refer to episode... uh, Monsters. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, his movie of choice was Westerns. Of course. So he apparently wanted to be in some way involved with movie making. And his first visit to a film studio was after he saw The Virginian in 1914, which was directed by Cecil B. DeMille. Mm -hmm. It seems like the first studio he visited was the Mutual Film Studio in Edendale. Okay. It's not name. It's some... It's a hat shot now. He enjoyed the environment on the movie sets, but more importantly, he enjoyed being able to play poker with the with right. the crew. <laughs> During the games, he would make friends with a lot of the filmmakers, and he would start telling them all of his stories about what it really was like in the Old West, and eventually this led to him being an unofficial and unpaid technical consultant really? on all things Western on a lot of movie sets. He was on the set of many John Ford movies. He became friends with the writer Wilson Misner, who also ran the original Brown Derby, mm. refer to episode... Monsters. Monsters. He worked with the director Raoul Walsh. He had a walk-on role in the movie The Half-Breed. Wyatt Earp was in a movie. movie. That's funny. He's in a movie. It was in 1916, which starred Douglas Fairbanks, the husband of Mary Pickford. She's back. <laughs> can't get rid of her. No, she's like a, the smell of a chili dog. You just can't get rid of it. <laughs> He even befriended a young actor who would bring him coffee. In return, Earp would tell him all of his stories of the West. This actor went on to be John Wayne, who... <laughs> had a feeling, you yep. know, right of when he started. Of course it was John Wayne. Imagine John Wayne bringing you coffee. Oh, every night, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> have I shown you? I have his footprints from the walk of <laughs> I have about uh, 40 of them because we kept breaking all of them, and he was tired of doing it. He was a doll about it, yeah. though. John Wayne, he said that all of his performances were based on these conversations really? that he had with Earp. So John Wayne also got his start in a Raoul Walsh movie after being recommended to him by John Ford, who was probably recommended to him by Earp. 
So you, you have Wyatt Earp to that. thank for John Wayne. Earp at one time went out to dinner with his old friend from Alaska, Jack London. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it's so weird? It's like really he, weird. he's from, he seems like he's from such a weird nether region of time. Yeah. And he's rubbing shoulders with <laughs> John Jack Wayne London. and Jacqueline, Jack London. <laughs> so he was at dinner with Jack London and Raul Walsh at a place called Al Levy's Cafe, which is located at Third and Main. Do you know that area? Oh my God. I do know that area. Yeah. It's right next to the Lexington. Is that right? The bar? The bar, the Lexington. I'm not sure what corner exactly it was on, but it was probably the one that smells like pee. Oh, not the one that smells like poo or vomit. The no, one that, like- that's a nice corner. This place was an insanely famous seafood place which invented a native LA drink that didn't quite have the longevity of the Orange Julius, the Oyster Cocktail. Ooh, <laughs> yeah. no, It's exactly you. what you imagined. <laughs> so talk about a strange image. At this dinner, Charlie Chaplin came up to them to meet Wyatt Earp. <laughs> and this is what he said to him. You're the bloke from Arizona, aren't you? Tame the baddies, huh? <laughs> That's what he said You're to him. You're making this up. I am not making this up. Or my name isn't Wyatt Earp. <laughs> my name isn't WW Stapp. <laughs> so this encounter partly inspired the movie Sunset in 1988, which was about Wyatt Earp and Tom Mix solving a murder at the Oscars. That brings me to Tom Mix, who was a Western movie maker who made very flashy but simplified and not very accurate portrayals of the West. But he still became one of Earp's closest friends. So they were seen out together at places like Musso and Frank's. Imagine Wyatt Earp sitting in Musso and Frank's with his iPhone. His best friend and closest ally, however, was William S. Hart, who was a very big silent movie star that played a lot of cowboy types. Now, Earp may have been a big shot around movie sets, but the newspapers in L.A. were always... You called them Earp. Sorry. Let's start from the beginning. (laughs) So Burpee, Wyatt Burp, there are a lot of articles published about him that were very disparaging in a lot of the newspapers. But what bothered Earp most was how inaccurate most of the articles were. Yeah. So like any good senior citizen, he spent a lot of his, a lot of his time sending letters to the editor to try to correct those claims that they were making about him. Imagine another letter from Wyatt Earp. He's, he's, he says his hat wasn't pink. Some articles said that he had been killed. One article claimed that he had been beaten up in Dawson City, Canada, by a Canadian Mountie who was a little person. Is that right? A very outrageous story. Finally, the LA Times ran an article on March 12, 1922, written by J.M. Scanland, that was so false and ridiculous that it made Earp decide that he wanted to publicly set the record straight. So Earp had seen the power of this new thing that was movies, and he saw how effectively it could control people's emotions and their perceptions perceptions of things so he saw that it was time to reinvent himself one last time and secure his legacy and he put on the old badge one last oh, time God. and he shot the head of fox <laughs> gunfight at the so-so corral so he wrote a letter to his friend Hart saying that many wrong impressions of the early days of tombstone and myself have been created i am not going to live to the age of methuselah and any wrong impression I want to make right before I go away, the screen could do all this. He saw what movies could do. Yeah. Everybody in these stories have to, has movies, it. movies, movies. They all come to L.A. for movies and justice. <laughs> Earp, and to, because they're cowards and they <laughs> cause a lot of trouble all over the continental United States. Because they're not welcome in Arizona. <laughs> so Earp set about orchestrating a movie that Hart would direct and would star Tom Mix as Earp uh-huh. and would portray him in a very flattering way it seems like Earp even wrote a screenplay 
imagine that. He goes to a Starbucks. <laughs> What's another word for gunshot? <laughs> I said it too much on this page. Is it right to use italics in dialogue? <laughs> Anybody? A movie never materialized, so instead Earp got his personal secretary, who is a former mining engineer named John H. Flood Jr., to write his biography. Who better to write a biography <laughs> than a former mining engineer? So Earp gave a very sanitized and one-sided version of his story, but Flood obviously had no previous writing experience, so they sent the manuscript to the Saturday Evening Post in early 1926 to be published as a serial, but it was so poorly written that they and many other publications hated it and they rejected it. <laughs> so then a writer named uh, Walter Noble Burns was willing to write his own biography on Herb, but he said, no, we already have one. No, thank you. Oh my God. And then Burns went on to write like the seminal biographies on basically everybody else in the Old West. And then Herb paired up with a writer and former press secretary for Teddy Roosevelt from San Diego named Stuart Lake. Herb would tell Lake his story in the backyard of their final LA home, which was at 4004 West 17th Street in Arlington Heights. Mm -hmm. Earp died January 13th, 1925 in this house. He was 80 years old. He had chronic cystus, which might have been caused by prostate cancer. Right. His last words were, suppose, suppose. <laughs> Still dreaming. <laughs> suppose I just killed one more innocent man. <laughs> one last game of Pharaoh. So his last public appearance had been to vote in the 1928 election where he voted Democrat after being a lifelong Republican because Al Smith said he would repeal prohibition. <laughs> Mix and Hart were pallbearers at Earp's funeral. He died very poor, as both he and Sadie were addicted to gambling. Sadie, she loved Earp. She was very protective of his image. She was not at his funeral. Couldn't make it. A little busy. Uh, I'm hot. The cards just keep coming in my favor. I'm not going to give this. Not going to give this seat up to anybody. Yeah, she couldn't leave Pachanga. <laughs> she died in 1944 at 1812 West 48th Street in South LA. They're both buried in Colma, California, at the Hills of Eternity Memorial Park, which is a Jewish cemetery because Sadie was Jewish, and the rumor is that Earp actually converted to Judaism at some point, which is my hero. <laughs> Their house, forgiven. <laughs> their house is on the site of what was once Mount Vernon Junior High, which in the 1990s they wanted to rename after Earp because he lived there. Yeah. But they decided to name it after one of their former students, which is why it's now called Johnny Cochran Middle School. <laughs> <laughs> Another great lawman. <laughs> so, Ridiculous. <laughs> so when the school was built, though, the actual house was moved across the street. So the house itself is still around. Okay. So Earp wanted to die being seen as a romantic hero. But in reality, he died being more famous as the guy that rigged that boxing match rather than for the OK Corral. But that changed when after his death, Stuart Lake published the biography that he had written, Wyatt Earp, Frontier Marshal, which was very sanitized, <laughs> but it came out at a time when the country was going through the depression and there was so much gang violence that they wanted an idealized, like, invincible Western lawman. Yeah. So it became a huge hit. Then in 1932, Lake sold the book rights to Fox and the movies about Earp started pouring out. <laughs> so throughout the years, he's been played in movies by people like Henry Fonda, Jimmy Stewart, Burt Lancaster, Kevin Costner, Kurt Russell. So there was even a TV show on ABC from 1955 to 1961 that was called The Life and Legend of Wyatt Earp. So he, he did become a legend, after yeah. all, until the 60s when a guy named Frank Waters published a book called The Earp Brothers of Tombstone, which debunked this infallible image of Earp wow. that Lake had set up. 
but that book then itself got debunked a few years <laughs> later. The Bunko Squad. <laughs> the Bunko Squad. So that caused the public perception of Earp to get a little confused and ambiguous, and it became kind of hard to tangle the truth from the legend. Yeah. At different times, a righteous man of the law. The next day, he'd be a con man. He's seen as a hero of the West, but at the same time, he was a gambler at heart. He, he might have even been a pimp. <laughs> Whatever he was and is now, he was an early prototype for how Hollywood and the media in general nowadays could control who the world saw as a hero and who was a villain, something that we saw recently explored in Gone Girl. That's right. So this became Hollywood's specialty for a long, long time. Earp, in his days, made a lot of wild claims, like that he had killed Johnny Ringo, who is not the last Ringo I'll be talking <laughs> about tonight, which probably wasn't true, but that sort of stuff... Is still going on today with like the, the the American sniper guy who had a similarly controversial life and now he's being portrayed a certain way sort of as a hero by yeah. Hollywood. So this tradition that was tested out with Wyatt Earp is still going strong today in town. So what L.A. made up Earp to stand for vigilante justice and going across borders, usually illegally, to get whatever needed to be done. Some people say also that that set the stage for where the entire U.S. is now with like its tendency to go into countries it has no jurisdiction in to exact justice and to otherwise go around the law to get what needs to be done, done. But this is Ellie Meekly, not us Meekly. So <laughs> that's it for Wyatt Earp. Next on our play, when you were listening to me talk about William Faulkner, did you wish that it was uh, a Over. shorter... <laughs> Do you wish that it was shorter and more intense? Well, I got one for you. Oh, God. 1937, contract with MGM... F. Scott Fitzgerald, another great the novelist. The Great Gatsby? The Great Gatsby himself, <laughs> supped in Hollywood, and it was horrible. <laughs> this is F. Scott Fitzgerald on uh, California. I hate the place with sincere hatred. <laughs> they would all be inconvenient in every way, and I should consider it only as an extreme measure, <laughs> which it was. His life back in the East and the South during 1935 to 1936 was really terrible. His short time in Hollywood kind of revitalized him here and there which started, like I said, 1937 and went pretty much to the end of his life, but that didn't mean that he had no troubles whatsoever. Just to give you some context, his first novel, which was This Side of Paradise, which pushed him into like an overnight success, was written in 1920. Mm. The wealth he gained from this secured Zelda Fitzgerald, who's his uh, renowned crazy Abba, wife. Abba. World-renowned lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> With the finances he got from his first novel, he was able to secure her hand in marriage, which she was unable to... He couldn't put a ring on it unless he had some money. A year Always later, a he wrote The Beautiful and the Damned, another Fitzgerald masterpiece that was published in 1925. The Great Gatsby is published. Ooh. And although it wasn't an immediate success, it became his landmark piece and established him as the voice of the jazz age, 1925. And the voice of 10th grade. <laughs> 10th grade English class. Still haven't read it. Uh, you dear, really not read it? No, I never read it. Interesting. I read a lot of his short stories. I never read any of his novels, though. It's the same. I can never make it past the first chapter because I don't know who they're talking about. <laughs> the Great Gatsby. I need to know who that is first. It's Leonardo DiCaprio doing <laughs> hip-hop shoes. <laughs> I thought it was Robert Redford. During his successes, he had two very brief professional visits to Los Angeles as a screenwriter. His first visit to our city was in 1927, working on an original screenplay that he had written titled Lipstick. <laughs> a year earlier, upon returning from France after two and a half years with uh, Zelda, United Artists turned to the Fitzgeralds, you know, after all, Zelda was a writer too, to write a flapper movie for Hollywood uh, that was going to star Constance Talmadge. <laughs> Since Scott needed the money, he gambled on a part 
payment deal, which was thirty five hundred upon completion of lipstick against twelve thousand if it was accepted, with the presumption that it would take all of three weeks to complete because he's that good. <laughs> Zelda and Scott were in Hollywood from January to March of nineteen twenty seven, living like a bunch of flappers in a town that rewarded <laughs> indulgence. He put his screenplay on the back burner, and of course, it was rejected in April, and they returned to the East Coast bunch of failures a bunch of drunk failures he came back four years later 1931 to work on a script for mgm's red-headed woman starring gene harlow who would go on to haunt along with her husband paul Byrne, the house where sharon tate would have the premonition of the murder that would that the murder that she would be the star of refer to episode monsters Monsters. but scott didn't handle this assignment very well either although the film was produced his heavy drinking took a toll on his ability and he could didn't really contribute much to it the credit for the writing went to Anita Luce, who was a pretty famous screenwriter, who said that he tried to turn the, quote, silly book into a tone poem, which, all right, you give him some credit. He's really good. A tone poem? Tone poem. Like a poem of tone. Oh. Oh. The excessive drinking and the social lifestyle of the Fitzgeralds was beginning to mutate for the worse <laughs> over the next... Uh, If you're going to mutate, it's going to be for the worst. (laughs) Over the next 40 years, he slowly and mercilessly starts drowning himself in alcohol, while Zelda has breakdown after breakdown, moving from institution to institution. God. In LA or? No, no, no. no, On the East Coast. Okay. I'm just setting it up how bad it is. (laughs) In 1934, Tender is the Night is published, and it sells about 13,000 copies. Hollywood. I think it was average. How many people were in the country back then? 12. Thousand. So everybody, everybody <laughs> got a copy. A cop- everybody got one point copy. three copies for everybody. Hollywood was interested in making Tenders the Night into a movie. RKO had serious interest in it, hoping that it could feature Catherine Hepburn, and it would require some changes to the story, which Fitzgerald didn't Let like. Me pause for a second. Hubba hubba. Go on. <laughs> But nothing developed from that. No Hepburn for you. And in 1935, Goldwyn Studios went a step further, drawing up treatment for it, which they invited Fitzgerald over to the West Coast to rework. But again, nothing came into fruition for that. So here we are in 1935. He hadn't written anything of renown in several years, and for the first time in a very long time, editors were starting to turn his work away, which he didn't like. (laughs) Uh, He felt like his ability to write had vanished after years of kicking his brain cells in the teeth, which, sure. (laughs) He was turning into a solitary drunk, which would often lead to the DTs. What is that? The delirium tremens is that, yeah, yeah. All of his DTs would require hospitalization, which, of course, would cost money. Zelda is now in the Highland Sanitarium in North Carolina, which, of course, costs money. Oh, God. They presumed that she was going to be there for the rest of her life, so <sighs> sucks. In 1936, he tries to commit suicide after the New York Post reported to him that on his 40th birthday that he was just a ruined man. Like, they posted this entire article that he's drunk and he's manic. Okay, so he tries to kill himself. <laughs> he managed to get something valuable on the page. However, the autobiographical pieces that were published in Esquire that accumulate to a collection of essays called Crack Up. The Crack Up was about his psychological breakdown so it's autobiography it's not about his stand-up career <laughs> it was psychological breakdown didn't you hear me <laughs> although at the time they weren't really highly regarded they showed that he still had some promise left in him so he was able to use he was able to leverage his abilities slightly to get a job things got really ugly for him in march of 1937 as the stuff he was writing he was started regarding it as like half decent started begging his agents for money advance me on anything you can he was panicking about his finances because they were weaning and he was pushing for anything he can get his literary agent was harold ober who he like turned to for everything who bailed him out several times he was like basically his chief financial backer and he began pushing fitzgerald to go to Hollywood to be a screenwriter because I would probably he said that's probably your best shot for success they'll pay you you have a big name they'll just throw money at you you want to be like Faulkner don't you look what happened to him look how happy he is <laughs> cut, to, <laughs> <laughs> cut to him attempting his own suicide <laughs> drunk trying to tie a noose a southern noose 
That means it's dipped in a mint julep. Fitzgerald was apprehensive. Our, on, our only cultural touchstone <laughs> for the <laughs> South. Julep. Mint juleps and plantations. And the phrase, I say, I say. <laughs> and Colonel Sanders' suit. <laughs> yeah, that's the South. It's on their flag. A plantation wearing Colonel Sanders' suit. <laughs> with Foghorn Leghorn leaning on it, drinking a mint julep with a noose around his neck. <laughs> Despite Ober pushing him really hard, even though Ober was giving him all the money that he could get him, Fitzgerald was really apprehensive due to his last two trips in Hollywood to... <laughs> it's a very unfriendly town. It doesn't churn out novelists really well. <laughs> he, he had nothing really nice to say. He was trying to avoid California at all costs. He uses the word hate several mm-hmm. times when talking about California. He also claimed in a correspondence with Ober that no single man with a serious literary reputation has made good there. He wasn't entirely wrong. It was already chewing up and spinning out Faulkner around this time. But he was running out of options. He kept wiring Ober for money. Ober had to turn over to literary editor Maxwell Perkins to help keep Fitzgerald afloat. So everyone was trying to keep Scott going and it was failing. He needed so much money. Just so much money. He had to take care of himself. He had to take care of their daughter Scotty. He had to take care of Zelda. It's May of 1937 and it's been nearly a year since Ober could put a Fitzgerald piece in any magazine, and desperation was really high. His royalty statement from Scribner's from 1936, meaning his total earnings on all his books were turned in print, amounted to $81.18. Double digits. <laughs> Fitzgerald's mother... Also a palindrome of money. <laughs> <laughs> Fitzgerald's mother passed away in September of 36, and with that, he received a small share of her estate, but it was just a prolonged starvation, just a little bit longer. Ober kept pushing Hollywood, Hollywood, but he continued to resist, which must have really pissed Ober off, because like the more Fitzgerald resisted, he was just like... I'm not going to go to Hollywood. Can I have money? (laughs) It was getting harder for Ober on both sides. Fitzgerald was fighting him on one end, and RKO was losing interest in Fitzgerald over his reputation as a fall-down drunk. But Ober had to persist on both sides, and he eventually got the help of MGM's Edwin H. Knopf. Knopf? Knopf. Knopf. Edwin H. Knopf's and Knopf's. Edwin H. Knopf. Enough. <laughs> enough. That's enough of that. Enough of this. <laughs> he was able to convince the studio boys that Fitzgerald still had some life left in his writing. They were friends. Nuff and Fitzgerald were friends back in France. And he was a really big fan of his. And he had been reading The Crack Up in Esquire. So he knew that they were old friends still had some fight left in him. So with that confidence enough had in him, he became a very long and drawn out uh, negotiation to bring F. Scott Fitzgerald on board into MGM. And after a great many delays and post moments, old Fitzy got a contract. <laughs> And by the way, during the long hiring process, which is described in the book as on and again, off again, which means they were like, no, no, off no, again, no, off again, again. <laughs> off again, off again. It shows that Fitzgerald was really, really eager to start working in Hollywood. I guess a little hot rumble in the tummy makes an old drunk <laughs> miss it down Somebody like wanted this. to try an oyster cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> June 1937, Knopf goes out to New York and he uh, signs Fitzgerald up for a standard six-month contract, $1,000 a week with an attached renewal option of 1250 a week for the following year. Way more than Faulkner was getting. Yeah, I think we see who Hollywood values more. Bring me the young one. <laughs> Wyatt Earp. <laughs> <laughs> the fellow with the mustache. The one, you know, the one who com- keeps committing crimes. <laughs> By train, July 1937, off to Hollywood. Well, Culver City. By most accounts, Fitzgerald seemed really enthusiastic and curious about his new surroundings, unlike Faulkner, who showed up on the scene like, no. <laughs> Fitzgerald seemed really, really happy to be there. He meets Sheila Graham, who was a British gossip columnist, soon after arriving to uh, Culver City. She first sees him at the Coconut Grove, which was a popular Los Angeles nightclub where celebrities would, could be seen mingling. It was a ballroom within the Ambassador Hotel where years Ooh. later Robert Kennedy would be yeah. shot and killed. Also across the street from the Brown Derby. Also across the street from the Brown where Derby. Where fine dining would be shot and killed. <laughs> hey, a little hey. commentary oh, from the 30s. Go, uh, 
only 90 years too late. <laughs> I don't know if it's 90 years. Uh, listen to this in 10 years and it'll be 90 years. <laughs> Our episodes age like cheaply made wine. The cheapest. The book that I was reading refers to Fitzgerald's other biographies that point out how miserable he appeared to be into onlookers. But by a lot of accounts, it seemed like the people who were close to him said that he was really happy when he got to L.A., which is really nice. So Old Sport had to get to work. His views on filmmaking were not optimistic. He felt like the medium was trite and could only convey the most obvious emotion. Uh, so get to work. <laughs> Tears. Tears. And the fear of a train coming at you. <laughs> I give it 10 years. Or my name is an F. Scott Fitzgerald. And then he shot a Winchester rifle at the feet of <laughs> Louis B. Meyer. And then he shot Leo the Lion just to show who was king of the jungle now. And then it was him roaring in the logo. That weak voice of it, that weak doughy face. Uh, roar. Roar. Uh, roar. 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 With his New Hampshire accent. Uh, roar. What a rube. <laughs> he didn't really think filmmaking was all that great. He knew that it was just a mechanized system of writing. It was very unnatural. So he had that going together. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah, it's, I love it. He was fiercely, fiercely opposed to collaborative writing, going back to when he had to work on Redhead Woman with Marcel DeSano in 1931, which did not end well for Fitzgerald. So his, his idea of like, oh, yeah, this team up with somebody, no, well, <laughs> leave me alone. But it was different now because now he had to play ball. He was out of money. He was desperate. So they stick him in a room with a writer. He has to deal with it. Too bad, baby. Too bad, comma, baby. You're not my baby. You're a baby. Anywho, baby. baby. Listen up, baby. I'm F. Scott Fitzgerald. <laughs> you know, the great Gatsby, baby. They were paying him really well. He was placed between the 83rd and 91st percentile at MGM. Out of 220 writers, not more than a maximum of 18 were paid as well as he was. And almost right away, he begins to pay back his debts to Ober, his agent, which was very decent of him. He gives some money back to Perkins as well. The remaining 400 went to his living expenses, which included taking care of his daughter, who was going to Vassar, monthly hospital bills for Zelda. He was not drinking at the time. He was living incredibly frugally, driving around in the secondhand Ford, which was way beneath his stature. I, I just can't imagine. It's so weird. It is. F. Scott Fitzgerald driving around in a secondhand Ford. Waiting. Down Culver Boulevard. Waiting at a red light. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> waiting at a red light. <laughs> Wishing it was green, just like the light at the dock of Daisy's. <laughs> I read enough cliff notes to get that. <laughs> oh, the cliff notes are beautiful. God, that whoever wrote those cliff notes is fantastic. <laughs> G. Scott Fitzgerald. <laughs> Zelda Fitzgerald. <laughs> so the money he was getting was just putting out fires. He was keeping himself afloat. As well as they were paying him, it was just keeping him along. So things were looking good and he had to now deliver the goods, which oh boy. So during his year and a half at MGM, Scott was assigned to a total of six different projects. Of these six, one was a partial rewriting job of another MGM writer's original script called A Yank at Oxford, which knowing F. Scott Fitzgerald, he seems like he fit into that one based on the title alone. It was mostly just patchwork for that job. Four of the projects resulted in his writing screenplays based on the literary works of other writers, the titles of these being Three Comrades, Infidelity, The Women, and Madame Cruz. The last assignment only lasted a few days. That was Marie Antoinette, and from there, he was sent to work on The Women. With the exception of The Women, all the films he worked on were eventually produced, but Scott only received writing credit for his work on The Three Comrades, one of six. For a yank at Oxford, he was hired to add what Doris calls a collegiate gloss to the story of a young man who arrives at Oxford University and is instantly disliked by the other students for his American brashness. <laughs> the story also involves two lovely ladies played by Vivian Lee and Moreno Sullivan. Fitzgerald decided to touch up the characterization. Psycho? No. That's Janet Lee. Oh. Close. Vivian Lee is Gone with the Wind. Oh, uh, Mammy? She was Mammy, yeah. Yeah, so. it's a story about a young man who goes to a school in Oxford and Mammy's there. <laughs> <laughs> Frankly, my dear, <laughs> I don't give a damn about an Oxford comma. 
Fitzgerald decided to touch up the characterization of female characters and started by improving upon the dialogue, which if he showed a comparison of before and after Fitzgerald touched it up, but it was improved a lot in the <laughs> sort of Fitzgerald way. He spent about three weeks on this, and some of the original dialogue can still be heard in the film, but he received, like I said, no credit for his touch-up work. But he got paid, and he had a delightful lunch with Marino Sullivan, so... <laughs> There you go. Some experiences were just not as good as others, but that was fine. (laughs) Next up was The Three Comrades, which he was assigned to in August of 1937. But for this project came one of Fitzgerald's worst experiences working in our city. One of the reasons he didn't like to work with other writers was that he liked total control of what he worked on. He had it when he created his masterpiece literary work, but now in this new medium, he struggled to get the final say in anything. In all Fitzgerald's... that Spielberg deal? (laughs) If Jurassic Park was on my table, it would have been all different. (laughs) The great terrain. I wrote the line, kill her. Guy comes on the screen and says, shoot her. What's that? Oh, I say. Uh, that's, that's You're uh, all over the map on that one. That's, that's, a, that's a New Englander saying the only thing I think anyone outside of California says, which is, I say. <laughs> In all, Fitzgerald spent six months writing a total of seven different versions of his script for Three Comrades for Joseph Mankiewicz, who Fitzgerald referred to as Monkey Bitch. <laughs> Which is subpar coming from a literary titan, but in a way, (laughs) he really did lose his edge. (laughs) The Great Gatsby or Monkey Bitch. (laughs) It's almost funnier coming from him, just being so childish and vulgar. You know, a monkey bitch. You know what I call that guy there? Stink nose. (laughs) It looks like his nose stinks. Winter Dreams is one of my favorite things, but here he is, like, snickered, like, Monkey Bitch, so you're going to tell me me what the hell? I'm going to write with literary lines I want. He cared very little for Mankiewicz, who would later go on to win an Oscar for the screenplay and direction of All About Eve in 1950. Look at that. Picked a powerful enemy, buddy. <laughs> Fitzgerald wrote a treatment for the three comrades and was given the go-ahead to complete the final shooting script by himself, which he finished by September. After reading the first draft, however, Mankiewicz was seeing that Fitzgerald was going to need a lot of help. For a story regarding three young veterans of World War One in the early 1920s, Fitzgerald was adding scenes including St. Peter at the Pearly Gates and some other out-of-place little moments it's like that. It's weird that, that he, he and Faulkner had these like weird postmodern thing with like apostles and saints yeah and they both had to do with world war one which they're both fascinated with very strange very strange guys it, it was new like writing for movies was new and they thought oh he wrote a great novel yeah. he's gonna do such a fantastic job but it's different <laughs> you know who would have written great screenplays dostoyevsky <laughs> by the middle of october they assigned him a collaborator luckily it was an old new york acquaintance of fitzgerald named ee e. paramore so there was less hostility but not really they ended up getting into verbal arguments within the week both trying to impress monkey bitch (laughs) with two very different ideas of the story scott was always adventuresome with the screenplay and paramore wanted to keep it safe because safe sells safe Safe sells safe sells that's the that's the hot motto (laughs) the 30s safe sells and then in the 60s that all changed (laughs) he considered his work on the three comrades to be good and he took it very seriously and he was getting really frustrated with monkey bitch anytime that he tried (laughs) to take his script apart he rewrote much of the as a monkey bitch does as a monkey bitch you leave a monkey bitch with a script you watch what happens just like a monkey to go ahead and rip something apart you know if you leave an infinite amount of monkey bitches in a room eventually they'll type out the script for all about Eve (laughs) by the way we don't condone the nickname monkey no I know I'm not saying that that was a good thing to call anybody no but it's funny not even a monkey they know they They feel yeah they've got thumbs they can feel in all honesty, monkey hands freak the hell out of me. <laughs> Orangutan hands really scare me. I'm being honest. Orangutan? Orangutan. Orangutan? Orangutan Hans? That's the name of a Star Wars character, right? <laughs> Orangutan Hans. 
Monkey Bitch was rewriting a lot of the dialogue that Fitzgerald was putting down, and Fitzgerald held his dialogue to be sacred. But Ma- Mankiewicz claimed that Fitzgerald was a great novelist, sure, but he couldn't put down decent dialogue on the screen. His words were better that for... seems to be their Yeah, their, their problem. Problems. Yeah. I imagine that they were both very dramatic, and yeah. they wanted you to... Their scene descriptions must have been beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> we can't afford this. <laughs> the way he writes, cut two. <laughs> his words, as Mankiewicz was saying, were better for reading than speaking. Although he thought film was inferior medium compared to literature, he still was a fan of motion pictures. He decided to give himself a crash course in screenwriting by watching dozens of uh, MGM's greatest movies they had of the previous like 15 years and then typing up hundreds of like, these little file cards containing plot lines of all the successful films they put out. <laughs> it's a smart approach. It really is. But there's a certain amount of arrogance to that as well. Like the idea that you can break it down and synthesize it and hope to produce something natural when really what you're doing is very unnatural, especially if you're so used to writing novels that probably, I mean, I'm sure there's a structure to it, but to like look at a movie, like look at a, a bunch of movies and like every one of them does this. Like, that's Sid Field's stuff. Yeah, that's yeah. film like, school. How am I going to make a million dollars? So F. Scott Fitzgerald invented film school. He invented film school. <laughs> he wasn't looking at the greatest films of MGM, just the biggest hits, which is a really shrewd way of making money. The fighting was intensifying, but Fitzgerald, needing to keep himself employed, tried to keep it as civil as possible, which meant instead of screaming, he was writing really passive-aggressive uh, letters and sending them out. <laughs> Leaving notes on the refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to need to stop changing all my time. <laughs> the tension led him back to drinking, of course, and there were a few episodes where he was too drunk to make it to work, but he still, even that managed to keep his job although monkey bitch did take note of oh he's drunk again he can't come in also fitzgerald getting drunk playing with fire <laughs> he, he was one of those people it's fascinating reading this because i you know i drink from time to time i know whoa, a lot whoa, of people whoa, 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 whoa. this is a family program here i've known he people cho- he means chocolate milk come on everybody <laughs> he's, he's his tummy is full of chocolate milk dripping it's, out of his nose it's it's, it's bloody weaponous saw that coke we were doing off the <laughs> hands of uh, Bullwinkle. Are we keeping that in? <laughs> I don't remember what episode <laughs> <No>. that's from. <laughs> Refer to episode monsters for that one. It's fascinating that he would drink himself to be hospitalized. That's something that like, whoa, that wow, is that's insane. Very unhealthy behavior. Yeah, that is insane. <laughs> I, mean, I know people do it. I yeah. just like, so October, they brought Paramore in. The boys keep writing the script and they the keep- The band? Yeah, the band Paramore. Oh my god, I just realized that right now. He's got to change his name. Let's um, call him... Mm, Stinknose. Again. Stink. Again. That's what he meant by Paramore. <laughs> they kept rewriting the script, and then Mankiewicz kept sending it back to them. No, it's not good enough. And by January, Mankiewicz was tired of rejecting them, so he made his own drastic reworking of The Three Comrades, and it was set to shoot in early February of 1938. Fitzgerald was not happy about this <laughs> at all. He wrote a letter to Monkey Bitch, which I, I don't think he referred to <laughs> him to his... Time. He didn't, obviously didn't refer to Mankiewicz as Monkey Bitch to his face, uh, but... It, he pretty much, in his tone of voice, you could tell he was calling him Monkey Bitch. He told him that he, if he moved forward with this script, it would be a box office disaster. And he was dead wrong. <laughs> the picture opened to very fable reviews. It was selected as one of the 10 best pictures of that year. Hmm. They it was did a, that sort of thing back then? They only had 10 pictures. That was the 10th picture they ever made. <laughs> was Birdman on that list? <laughs> yeah, but it was the cartoon. <laughs> Referred to episode monsters. It was a success at the, at the time at the box office, and Mankovitz was very, very pleased, mostly because he got to gloat about it. Mm. And upon viewing the final cut of the film, Fitzgerald was filled, of course, anger, of course, frustration, a slumping. Apparently, he went to... <laughs> and a, alcohol. And the alcohol helps you slump in the chair. <laughs> uh, he was sitting in the theaters, just slumped in his chair as deep as possible. He took it very badly. With a laser pointer. <laughs> stupid nose. <laughs> but you didn't stupid write... Stupid stink nose. Stupid stink nose. And you're all stink nose to me. If you're not a stink nose, you're a monkey bitch. <laughs> Look how bad this picture is. A little red dot everywhere. <laughs> Who wrote this? 
After all the craziness that he goes through, Fitzgerald's name appears only in the credits for this movie. This is the only one he gets credit as screenwriter for. Hmm. Awesome. After all of that insanity he had to go through. <laughs> also, because of the three comrades, his option was picked up by the studio and his weekly salary was raised to twelve fifty a week. He's the champion now. Yeah, he's, he's champion. You know how much Wyatt Arp was making a week? <laughs> $70. Faulkner was kicked down to 300 a week. 300 a week and he had three families to take care of and here's F. Scott Fitzgerald. So next up was uh, a movie called Infidelity, which Scott was hired to make the material interesting enough to last 75 minutes of a movie and yet tame enough not to bother the censors which were having the field day in the <laughs> 30s. Safe cells. And think of the title itself, Infidelity. <laughs> Safe cells. It involves a woman whose husband has cheated on her once with his secretary and after discussing divorce, she ends up forgiving him and the happy endings ensue. Uh, the studio was pushing for Joan Crawford. A real Crawford. feminist movie. Look, he messed up once, but if you ever do it, you're going to be in the ground. That was dialogue from the movie. The studio was pushing for Joan Crawford, so Scott screened three of her biggest movies, Chained, Possessed, and Forsaking All Others, and began to break down the films analytically, dividing them into acts and scenes, and examining the dramatic structure. He was really good at this. Mm -hmm. After this, he created a dramatic plan, showing how all the acts and sequences would play out according to this plan. It was very mechanized, and he was getting a really good idea of how it was all working as a whole, how you can take scenes and build it up to a screenplay. So he was getting better he was really serious about this project as well he was able to work alone on it which was really awesome (laughs) but he was still going through revisions because he himself was very unsatisfied with his own work he knew he wasn't a great screenwriter at this point and nothing it wasn't coming out to his satisfaction he continued revising the script through uh, the spring of 1938 with the impossible task of creating a box office success while getting the approval of the uh, official production code of the 30s those prudes (laughs) and and with the subject of adultery it was already a hard balancing act also production code you might want to refer to episode monsters (laughs) (laughs) To learn a little bit more about that. None of his revisions or anything mattered. Fitzgerald was taken off the project that May after the board decided that the very theme of the movie was too risque. They even attempted to change the title of the movie to Fidelity. No dice. So it was a great disappointment to Fitzgerald and the producer that Scott couldn't just rename it Christian Values. <laughs> the entire writing process for this, which he did take seriously, it was really disappointing that, that it didn't go through. And he also had a producer on that who he was trying to impress, and he was really looking forward to Fitzgerald knocking something out, and he was really disappointed that Fitzgerald kept revising and revising and revising, but it didn't matter anyway, so I don't know what the result been out of shape for. He worked a week on Marie Antoinette, and there's very little to say about this experience other than it sent him to work on The Women, which he worked on in May of 1938. A little earlier that year with the same producer of Infidelity. The same sort of problems were arising from Infidelity. Fitzgerald had to please the producer, and even with a writing collaborator that was brought on board for the project, they were finding it both impossible. The producer, Hunt Stromberg, was constantly changing his mind about the direction that the writers should move forward in. They, they made a remake recently. I, I forget who's in it. But it's a cast of all women. A lot of talking. Ghostbusters? And I, it's Ghostbusters. All women, Ghostbusters. I hope that's the title of the new Ghostbusters. All women, all Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. Women welcome. Ghostbusters. Busters, colon, colon, now hiring. <laughs> Subtitle, tell them about the Twinkie. So after about four months of writing and rewriting and writing and rewriting the women, Stromberg never seemed satisfied and Fitzgerald was taken off the project and that's when he begins to work on something called Madame Cruz, which was simply to stick him somewhere. They were just waiting out his contract with MGM at this point, so just make him do something. Halfway through the script of uh, Madame Cruz at Christmas, he was abruptly informed that his contract was not going to be renewed. Bummer. He had been fired after 18 months and now was back into panic mode. There's two reasons why Fitzgerald was let go from his contract. First was economic, as they they learned that he was good, but not that good. He hadn't really produced a lot. He didn't get his name around. He hadn't put anything out there that was Fitzgerald's work. The other was based on his drinking, which was somewhat speculative, somewhat fact. 
He didn't drink very much while he was employed at MGM, but when he did, it was a complete disaster, costing him nothing more than just time away from his job. So now Fitzgerald had to find writing work outside of MGM. He left Madame Cruz and was picked up by David Oselznik, big name, to do some quick last-minute work on Gone with the Wind. Mm. Uh, he wasn't writing necessarily... With Mammy. With Mammy, starring Mammy. <laughs> He wasn't writing necessarily. What he was really doing was just polishing dialogue. What year was Gone with the Wind? Uh, sometime before 1939, 1938-ish. And they, they of, of the two great American writers, they chose the one not from the South to help with the realistic dialogue in Gone with the Wind. I'm pretty sure nobody wanted to bother Faulkner. <laughs> He's just sitting in the shorts by a typewriter like, uh, Mr. Faulkner, <laughs> that's where hoping... they That's where they got the line, I don't give a damn. <laughs> it was Faulkner's response to their queries. They had to add, quite frankly, later. <laughs> cleaned it up. <laughs> February 1939, Fitzgerald hires a couple agents that help him become a freelance screenwriter. He found out a job working on a Walter Wagner production called Winter Carnival. His asking price was 1500 per week, which he got. God, he's just Breaking up in the in. ante. What's well, Fitzgerald? Uh, this was another college romance story, so it was right up Fitzgerald's alley. However, his time on the project turned into, like I said, a complete nightmare, and it tarnished his reputation for his years of Hollywood work after that. Wagner had hired a Dartmouth alumnus named Bud Schulberg to pin Bud this. Schulberg. Bud Schulberg to pin what this. What makes Sammy run? They hired him to work with F. Scott Fitzgerald. At, uh, remind me how F. Scott Fitzgerald likes to work with other people. Yeah, he loves it. He loves it, especially when it's collaboration Bud was his motto. And drinking was his vice. Uh, so Wagner, Schulberg, and Fitzgerald fly out to Dartmouth to experience an actual winter carnival, full camera crew and everything. So Fitzgerald starts drinking on his plane ride heading east, and he, God. in typical jazz aid fashion, gets drunk off his ass. He continued that one-man party with little breaks of sobriety for 10 days. There were several, quote, The jazz aid was over. <laughs> get, get over it. F. Scott. We're in the bebop days. It's heroin or nothing. <laughs> heroin or bust. So there were a lot of incidents. Scott was often moments from collapsing. Wagner, for his credit, put up with a lot of this behavior, but eventually fired both Fitzgerald and Schulberg and sent them to New York. On the train ride to New York. New York City. New York City. On the train ride to New York City, Schulberg took full responsibility for Fitzgerald that he could no longer take responsibility for himself. <laughs> and to top it off, it was seeming like Scott was suffering from pneumonia, you know, winter carnival. And with the help of his lady friend back in L.A., Sheila Graham, they were able to admit him to a hospital to treat everything. He spent a week there, and Schulberg was rehired by Wagner to complete the script. But Schulberg wrote a novel titled The Disenchanted. It was published a decade later, and it tells the story of Manly Halliday, a thinly veiled <laughs> representation of F. Scott Fitzgerald, who in the novel is a man who lacks all personal dignity, a once charismatic and talented man who has fallen into pieces. This and many other accounts cemented the idea of Fitzgerald in Hollywood, which was the image of a washed-up, suicidally alcoholic shadow of his former self. Hmm. So his image was completely tarnished. Try to get in a job in Hollywood after they know that if they hire you, you're going to get drunk for 10 days and have to go to a hospital. <laughs> 1939, the whole Dartmouth Winter Carnival thing was a total train wreck and it cost Fitzgerald a lot. Not only financially, since doctors and hospital time aren't free and you aren't a writer if every inch of tissue is soaked in gin, but also spiritually, his good streak was over now. He no longer had a regular job, so he would slip into long drinking binges. He'd just end up at hospitals. He kept ending up in hospitals. Summer of 1939 was so gloomy for Fitzgerald and Graham, and she was convinced that he was trying to kill himself, which he probably was. He would have if it wasn't for her constant care. His depression was justified, really. He tarnishes. He he was responsible for tarnishing his own reputation. His behavior in New Hampshire had gone around and people were reluctant to hire him. He drank himself out of a job, basically. And into our hearts. And into our hearts, where we keep him in a little flask. <laughs> he took a very ill-advised trip to first North Carolina, got Zelda, who they let uh, out on a holiday, a brief holiday, and then oh, they went God. to Cuba. Oh, God. <laughs> 
And once again, he began to drink in an old jazz aid fashion. From all accounts, the entire Cuba trip was a disaster. He had gone to a really vicious fight. They ran out of mojitos. (laughs) (laughs) Hemingway was there. He drank all of them. (laughs) Hemingway was here, wasn't he? Hemingway! (laughs) Ernie! Damn it, Ernie! He gets into a really vicious fight in Havana, and then he gets back to the States, another one in New York with a cab driver. He later collapsed at the Algonquin Hotel, completely exhausted. So Zelda had to admit him to the doctor's hospital where he had to stay for two weeks. This was the last time that Zelda and Scott saw each other. What a fitting goodbye for both of them. You're having a breakdown. I got to go continue my breakdown. It's been nice. It's been nice playing Splendor in the Grass with you. I got to the mental institution. Have, have fun lying on this pool table. <laughs> That's what she said to Abbott Kinney. After this, Check back to episode, check, monsters. episode Monsters. After this whole thing, he returns to California and he's forced to remain in bed for several more weeks. It's some months before he's able to attempt working again. He picked up a single week's work at Universal. His money problems were mounting once again and he turned to a short story writing which he hadn't touched in a year. All of his nine published titles were still in print. Their total sales in 1939 came out to 114 copies. Royalties cashing it at $33. Oh my God. God. Double digits. Was it 33 cents also just to... Palindrome thing? Yeah. yeah. It was he gets cents. paid in palindromes. <laughs> what I just said was a palindrome. As he was recovering, he slowly became a different type of social being. Once a man who shuffled lightly from extravagant party to extravagant party, he was now content to just sit around a room with friends and entertain or be an entertainment in small groups. Sheila and Scott, before all of this, were living somewhere called the Garden of Allah. It was off of Sunset Boulevard and now a parking lot. It was once a very lavishly exotic... The uh, parking lot of Allah. <laughs> It was built by a 20s film star named Ala Nazimova. It was very lavishly exotic. A lot of writers stayed there. A lot of drunks stayed there. So around this time, 1938, she decides to leave this place because it's probably a bad influence. <laughs> uh, she had a beach house in Malibu that she was renting. I couldn't find the address, but the conditions in the winter were lacking the charm they sought. So they ended up in the fall of 1938 renting a house in Encino, hmm. the former estate of comic actor Edward Everett Horton. Do you know who he was? The Horton who heard the who? Mm-hmm. Oh, you're wrong. He actually narrated Fractured Fairy Tales of Rocky and Bullwinkle show. Oh, my God. The narrator. Wow. We did, we did a bunch of blow off of them. <laughs> <laughs> also, refer back to episode Monsters to learn a little bit more about that. That's weird. It's really weird. He was in the 40s, the honorary governor of the Valley. Wow. Yeah. Check F. That Scott out. Fitzgerald? No. Uh, I don't like you. <laughs> this estate of Mr. Horton's was called Bally Acres. 5521 Amstoy Avenue, now, according to Google, uh, part of the 101 freeway. Mm. Mm. But they did name a street after him. If you've driven around, you recognize him. Edward Everett Horton is off of uh, Burbank Boulevard. I believe it's by Balboa, I think. Oh, and one of the guests at the cottage after the Fitzgeralds was Vivian Fance, or as we know her, Ethel Mertz. Oh, my God. Check that out. Back to business. Fitzgerald's recuperating. Uh, they stayed at Bally Acres with the name he hated, by the way, for 18 months. Uh, after Encino, they stayed in a small apartment off of North Laurel in Hollywood because she still worked in Hollywood, so they had to be close to that. He was beginning to go out again. He would go to Musso and Frank's, popular among alcoholic <laughs> and, writers. And cowboys. And cowboys. <laughs> White Earp was there. William Faulkner was there. Raymond Chandler was there. Fitzgerald was writing short stories again, and they, but they weren't getting picked up, so he was coming short on money again. He began wiring his old ATM, Harold Ober, his literary agent for money. Ober paid him once upon Fitzgerald's second request. For the first time ever, Ober denied him. He didn't want to start another lending spree with Fitzgerald because they'd gone on forever, and he didn't want to have to rely on that. So that professional relationship was over, and it was a friendship over. (laughs) 
Realizing now that he couldn't rely on Ober to front him the money, he understood that now he was completely on his own and had to rely on himself to bring in money, like an adult. Mm-hmm. He managed to get a job at 20th Century Fox, but it only lasted a day since it was just coming up with ideas for an ice skating picture. <laughs> he hustled a job from Sam Goldwyn to rewrite a script called Raffles, but the producer and the director got into a fight and Fitzgerald's services were no longer needed after that. Look at him staying out of a fight. Mm-hmm. March of 1940, he managed to write some serials for Esquire, paying him about $250 per story, which ran a little over a year. They weren't really good and he knew it. These They, they referred to as the Pat Hobby stories. They're kind of autobiographical. But it was just survival. Also in 1940, he managed to sell the rights to one of his best shows, Babylon Revisited. He sold it to Republic Studios, the lowest of the low, he called them. Studio City. For $800. One of his best stories he sold for $800. Have I told you about the parking lot at Republic Studios? Mwah. Beautiful. If you're going to have your car seen anywhere in this town, you have your car seen at the Republic Studios parking lot. Yeah. But he also managed to wrangle up a $300 a week paycheck working on a screenplay. So good for him. Demoted, though. The story makes for a great short story, but the idea that it could be turned into a full-length feature seemed really improbable. And before long, the crux of the story got away from them. Fitzgerald began adding cliches, hoping that it could sell easier. And after a while, the story was out of Wall Street, millions of dollars lost, paid assassins, Shirley Temple got involved, and the <laughs> script took another mutation. The most dangerous of all, <laughs> paid assassins. <laughs> paid assassins like uh, Shirley Temple. Uh, now I can do my uh, impression of William Faulkner singing animal crackers in my soup. <laughs> you were just waiting this whole time. Animal crackers, I say in my soup. From this, he spent the better part of a July day in the company of 12-year-old Shirley Temple, attempting to convince her and her mother to do the project, knowing that it would land a deal easier if she was attached to it. She didn't, and the project took a hit. It wasn't until 1954 when MGM bought the rights for $100,000, which they rewrote the script Fitzgerald had written for it, and it became the last time I saw Paris with Elizabeth Taylor and Van Johnson. This was a long time after he died. He gets a few more meager jobs around some studio that manages to survive, but his career as a screenwriter has accumulated nothing significant. For his last film assignment, Light of Heart, his screenplay was considered unacceptable and later rewritten as Life Begins at 8.30, but it didn't matter. He took the 7000 for it, fine, whatever. With that, though, he turned back to literature and began to work on his final novel, The Last Tycoon, which is uh, regarded as one of his best. If there's any doubt that Hollywood had drained F. Scott Fitzgerald of his talent, The Last Tycoon was proof that he still had it in him. It is seen as one of his best works. He had processed the studio system and could effectively comment on it, which was really important. The novel, however, is unfinished because Fitzgerald died before he could close it off. He died of a heart attack December 21st, 1940, in Sheila Graham's apartment. Didn't... Uh, uh, didn't end well for him. Well, I kind of did. Nothing ends well for anybody. Anybody? No. Nope. Gotta tell you, most people die. How? <laughs> Heart attacks in Sheila E.'s apartment. Whatever you say. <laughs> if you look at these two examples of men who came to Hollywood to work to simply make money, it took a lot out of them. Like, they, like yeah, Faulkner was able to walk away from it. F. Scott died here, but he was working on his novel. They both went back to literature, but Hollywood had drained a certain element of their, I don't want to say creativity. It, it, it seemed to take a real like, innocence out of them. It showed them that there was a, a, other writing, this other art medium happening that they could not be involved in, that they took, they took serious ego hits with. Hollywood is a character from a Todd Browning movie. <laughs> we have one last person to get to. Very interested. It'll be refreshing that this did not involve writing scripts for Hollywood, but it did involve just as much drinking as any of these <laughs> stories. John Lennon, John here we Lennon. go. You might know John Lennon for his role in How I Won the War. <laughs> or, obviously, he was a prominent member in the Plastic Ono Band. <laughs> 
You also know that John Lennon adopted New York as his city of choice, but there was a period in his life that he referred to as his lost weekend, which actually lasted for 18 months from the summer of 1973 into early 1975. Okay. September of 1973 to early May 1974 being spent mostly right here in Los Angeles. It was ready to break another. (laughs) (laughs) Break another soul. (laughs) The cause of this weekend was that John and his wife, Yoko Ono, they were having marital problems. I can't believe that. (laughs) It is weird because the image of them now is like, oh yeah, they loved each other and he just didn't have time for the Beatles. Yeah. Maybe not. (laughs) Ono felt that she was ruining John's career and she knew that people hated her. Greg is nodding uh, right now. We're trying to get Yoko on as a guest. (laughs) All we get is Cynthia Lennon. (laughs) She keeps emailing us. She felt that she was ruining John's career and she knew that people hated her for that and that people hated John because of her. So it was too much and she wanted out. And at the same time, she saw that John's eyes were starting to wander. I can't believe that. And that an affair was inevitable. So to preempt this, Yoko approached their assistant that they had had since 1970, a 22-year-old from Spanish Harlem named May Pang. So mm. Yoko told her that she and John were not getting along and that she knew that he wanted to be with another woman. So she wanted it to be someone she knew and she trusted to treat John well. So that's uh, that's healthy, right? <laughs> They're very open, okay? <laughs> don't just don't just put your own stuff all over John and Yoko. Don't put your old world tradition values on. <laughs> so Yoko knew that John was attracted to Pang, so she told her that when John asks her out, just do it. Pang, obviously, she thought that this was incredibly weird uh, and icky. So nothing happened for like two weeks until one day she and John got into an elevator at the Dakota to go to the studio to record Mind Games. Mm-hmm. And John grabbed her and kissed her and said he'd been waiting a long time to do that. <laughs> so after the recording was done for the night, John told her that I'm coming home with you. Pang did not feel comfortable with this, so she resisted him. She called him a car to take him home, and the same thing went on for a few days until one night he insisted that he come home with her. She finally agreed, and their relationship was on. That's the way John Lennon operated. All Beatles songs are based on persistence. (laughs) So as soon as Mind Games was finished, they decided they wanted to get away from New York and Yoko and everything that they knew to be able to have their own relationship, so they left, and they came to La La Land, uh, Dollywood. So when they first got here, they stayed in John's lawyer's apartment, but eventually they moved into Lou Adler's place in Bel Air for a few months. And from there, they moved around to different places, such as the Beverly Wilshire and other friends' houses. John had many friends in L.A., but the one that he gravitated to and he spent the most of his time with was a singer that he greatly admired named Harry Nilsson, who is famous for... Everybody's talking. (laughs) The two were good friends, and they had a lot of respect for each other. Unfortunately, Nielsen was notorious for the Herculean amount of drugs and alcohol that he would take part in. He would drink so much that after he sang, there would be blood on the microphone. Wow. So what was worse, he had a very strong enabling effect on John, who already had an inclination for taking too much part in things like that. He's very participatory. Very much so. And without Yoko around to keep that behavior in check, John started doing a lot of substances. So they would often go to the Rainbow Bar and Grill, which is still there at Mm -hmm. 9015 Sunset Boulevard. There's even a plaque in the room upstairs that commemorates the Hollywood Vampires which was a late-night drinking club that Nilsson and Lennon were a part of, in addition to Alice Cooper, Mickey Dolenz, and Keith Moon. I I never want to be in the room with any of those people. Maybe Maybe Mickey Dolenz. Maybe Mickey Dolenz. (laughs) What was it like working with Davy Jones? (laughs) (laughs) Other frequent drinking partners of theirs included people like Warren Beatty, Jack Nicholson, Mm -hmm. Roman Polanski, of course. (laughs) 
Cher, the Beach Boys, and Cheech and Chong. Oh, boy. <laughs> so the most notorious of John and Nielsen's exploits happened at the Troubadour, which is at 9081 Santa Monica Boulevard. Mm-hmm. The first incident started with a dinner at a restaurant called Lost on Larrabee, which seems to have been at 805 Larrabee in West Hollywood, right. where John, of course, had been drinking. He went to the bathroom and he came back with a Kotex pad stuck onto his forehead. Funny. Yeah, and Pang pleaded with him to take it off. Please take it off. But he refused to do it and it just stuck there because of his sweat. So he just left it on for the whole night. So then they went to the Troubadour to watch an Ann Peebles show. And after the show, John refused to leave the waitress a tip. And when she confronted him about it, he said, do you know who I am? And she said, yes, you're an asshole with a Kotex on your head. (laughs) The oh, more I love that. I would have loved to watch that. <laughs> so the more famous incident, though, it happened on March 13th, 1974, also at the Troubadour, at a Smothers Brothers show. Uh-huh. So it was the Smothers Brothers' first appearance in L.A. in five years, and John and Nielsen and Peng were sitting in a VIP area, and John, with the encouragement of Nielsen, kept ordering Brandy Alexander's. So John got very drunk. And this is when that famous picture will show of John sucking down the mouth of Pang was taken. As John got even more drunk, he started heckling the Smother Brothers during their act, behavior that was also encouraged by Nielsen because he told him that they needed heckling because they had no act. Oh my god. So according to Tom, according to Tom Smothers, John was yelling some of the worst language I've ever heard. <laughs> People in the crowd wanted John to shut up. People like Peter Lawford of the Rat Pack. He was yelling at John. Other people on the audience, Paul Newman and Lily Tomlin. So he wouldn't stop doing it. So the Smothers Brothers manager came over to get John to be quiet. So John swung at him. He missed. Then the manager swung at John, also missed. (laughs) And then John threw a glass that hit a waitress. And then he got dragged out of the place yelling and knocking down tables. And then he got thrown out on the street. And this 50-year-old photographer named Brenda Mary Perkins tried to take a picture of John. So according to her, he slapped her over the right eye. which she reported to the LAPD. John said it wasn't true. After a two-week investigation, they found that there was not enough evidence, so the case was dropped. Uh. But after this ordeal, John was so embarrassed, and he sent letters of apologies to the Smothers Brothers, (laughs) to their manager, and to the Troubadour. He saw that it was time to get a grip on himself and clean up his act, so he decided... What a whim. (laughs) Haven't you read Gerald's story? No, he decided that it was time to make some actual music, so he settled on producing an album from Nielsen that eventually became known as Pussycats. Mm -hmm. So John's great idea for this was that all the musicians involved in this album should live together during the recording process. So John, Pang, and Nielsen moved into a house with Klaus Vorman and Keith Moon. (laughs) So the house, it's weird. The house that they moved into is dripping with L.A. history. It's still there at 625 Palisades Beach Road in Santa Monica. Uh The house was originally built by Louis B. Meyer in 1936 in what was then the area where all the movie moguls and other powerful L.A. people lived, such as J. Paul Getty and Mary Pickford. Wow, again. (laughs) She's back yet again, which gave the area its nickname Rolls-Royce Row. That's easy to say. So at the time, Meyer was the highest paid person in the U.S., so the house has 20 rooms, and the construction of it went on for 24 hours a day for six weeks straight. In 1947, Meyer divorced his wife, who got to keep the house, and in 1956, she sold it for $95,000 to none other than Lennon's future foe in the troubadour, Peter Lawford of the Rat Pack, Wow! and his wife Patricia. So now Peter was friends with Marilyn Monroe. 
and Patricia was John F. Kennedy's sister. So eventually the two were introduced, and this house became their love nest whenever Kennedy was in town, and Kennedy made it a point to come to town. (laughs) (laughs) So he was over there so much, they called this place the Western White House. Monroe also had an affair with Robert F. Kennedy in this house. Peter Lawford actually was the last person ever to speak to Marilyn Monroe when he called her on the phone to invite her to a dinner party at this house, but her words were slurred and incoherent, so he sent somebody over to the house where she was found dead. So anyway, <laughs> John and Pang stayed in the Kennedy Monroe affair room and they <laughs> and there was also a library in the house that they converted as a guest room for their frequent guest Ringo Starr. He basically lived there. Oh he was basically living with Ringo Starr. So the first recording session for this Pussycats album happened on March 28th, 1974 at the record plant at 1032 North Sycamore Avenue in Hollywood. So this night, that night of the first recording was incredibly historic. So after the session was done around midnight, a couple of old friends stopped by to visit. Charles Manson. <laughs> Close. It was Paul and Linda McCartney. So a little bit later, another musician who was recording down the hall dropped in, Stevie Wonder. So then they started an impromptu jam session. It didn't really sound like anything other than John yelling at the sound guy and asking people if they wanted more cocaine. (laughs) But there's a recording of it that is now known as a toot and a snore in 74. So unfortunately, Ringo and Keith Moon, who were there earlier, they had already left to go party. (laughs) But this was the only time ever, future, after this date and before that, after the Beatles, that John and Paul recorded music together was this night. Wow. And the next day, though, John invited Paul and Linda over to the beach house. So they came and they brought their kids. Ringo was there too. Paul started playing on the piano and Ringo joined him, but John sat it out. He didn't feel like it. George also had a house... George Harrison. I was just about to bring up poor George. Well, he also had a house in the LA area, but he didn't really seem to be around much during this time. So this was the closest to a Beatles reunion that ever happened was in Los Angeles. So John then set out to record an album of his own in December 1973 that came to be known as Rock and Roll, Mm -hmm. which was to be produced by Phil Spector. Oh boy. (laughs) Always with the stories. Great, great choices to work with. They chose A&M Studios to record at, which used to be Charlie Chaplin Studios and is now Jim Henson Studios. Consider the environment here. John Lennon liked order in the studio. His producer was Phil Spector, and his studio musicians were Harry Nilsson and Keith Moon. <laughs> okay, we're gonna we're gonna put two wild animals in there with you, and then my fear behind the glass. You got so, this? <laughs> so let's start with Spector. John once said about him, I'm fond of his work a lot. His personality, I'm not crazy about. (laughs) Focus on the word crazy. (laughs) Spectre would show up to the studio sometimes dressed as a cowboy, sometimes a surgeon, sometimes a karate instructor. Mm -hmm. He would drink a bottle of vodka every night and yell at people. In the studio next door, they could hear him yelling at John through the walls. God, yelling at John Lennon. <laughs> One time, Spectre stole John's glasses so that he couldn't see anything and had his personal bodyguard tie him up. John was screaming and kicking because he thought Spectre was going to rape him, and then he just let him go. So then Spectre also, of course, he carried with him at all times a loaded gun mm-hmm. with which he would brandish at John and chase him through the halls, <laughs> threatening that he was going to kill him. <laughs> And he would also occasionally shoot the ceiling. And one time he shot a gun right next to John's ear. Oh, my God. Uh, But what got them kicked out of the studio, though, was as detailed in an irate letter that John wrote titled, A Matter of Pee, was that Nielsen and Moon peed all over the recording console. So they finished the recording at a studio in New York. But uh, (laughs) but then... (laughs) They peed on everything, so then they were kicked out. (laughs) But Spectre then got into a car accident and disappeared for months with 
with the tapes of the recordings, Jesus. and then he resurfaced to tell John that he would only give him the recordings if he paid him $90,000. Okay, so that's going to happen. Yeah. So the other album he made during this last weekend was called Walls and Bridges, and when that came out, he went into the Tower Records on Sunset Boulevard and personally autographed everybody's copy that was buying one. Oh, wow. But a lot of people talk about how depressed John was during this time being away from Yoko, but the picture that Pang paints of it is the exact opposite. He, he actually seemed to be very happy in L.A., happier than he had been in many years. And he got to reconnect with his first son, Julian, who mm-hmm. came to visit often. He hadn't seen his son in four years Jesus. before he came to visit him, and they stayed at the Beverly Hills Hotel. So John and Pang, they would take him to Disneyland. One time they went to a taping of Happy Days at Paramount <laughs> Studios. And his first wife, Cynthia, even accepted Pang as a sort of mother figure for Julian, something that she never felt towards Yoko. Supposedly, Paul also loved Pang, something he never felt towards Yoko. (laughs) So it seemed like Pang was good for John in a lot of ways, and they were happy. Her voice is even on the song Number Nine Dream. She whispers, John, John. The only incident... (laughs) She's trying to wake him up. (laughs) The only incident was when they went to Palm Springs once and John got very drunk and almost strangled her to death (laughs) before Nielsen had to pull him off of her. (laughs) And then then John was getting ideas about how fun it would be to reunite the Beatles. And Peng was like, yeah, you should do that. So he planned to visit Paul and Linda who were living in in Nolens. And the possibility of a reunion was very strong, but Yoko was never really out of the picture. So she would call multiple times every day during this entire lost weekend. Then in February 1975, Yoko wanted John back and she told him that she had found some new hypnotherapy way to quit smoking and he really did miss her, so he went back to her. He never went to Nolens <laughs> like he planned. There was no Beatles reunion. Uh-huh. Pang went on to marry and then divorce Tony Visconti. Okay. She now lives in upstate New York with her two kids and makes jewelry. Okay. She doesn't speak much to Yoko. <laughs> She's still very close with Cynthia, though. It was a great romance, but ultimately, Yoko probably was what was best for John. And they really did love each other, which is why they got back together. So happy Valentine's Day, everybody. <laughs> John Lennon was murdered five years later. So many good romances in this story. (laughs) All the great romances. John and Yoko, F. Scott and Zelda, (laughs) Wyatt Earp, and his gambling wife that didn't go to his funeral. Sadie. (laughs) Sexy Sadie. Sexy Sadie. So those are some people that uh, made their mark on our city. They came, wham, bam, thank you, Los Angeles. Where can I go and indulge for a while? (laughs) I know a place. It's called Harry Nilsson's house. (laughs) He's dead. Did they not like Musso and Franks? Was that not hip in the 70s? Come on. Come on. You can't get that drunk at Musso and Franks. <laughs> They'll cut you off after a while. The troubadour is in now. I just can't believe John Lennon's behavior. He, he was a Beatle. That means something. <laughs> Live up to the name. Just debauchery. People come to LA and they just get debauched. <laughs> That's been our episode. Maybe our longest. We'll see how this one yeah. turns out. Thank you again for listening. You can check us out, of course, as always, in a little place we like to call iTunes. The land between dream and shadow. <laughs> Facebook, of course. Look for us. Tumblr. We have our Tumblr, elliemeekly.tumblr.com. At Ellie Meekly on Twitter. Anything and else? look for us around on the streets, you yeah. know? You I mean, all know what we look like? No, you don't know us. Don't look for us. Where'd you even get that idea? We could be anybody. We are everybody. <laughs> We're also anonymous. We're also Greg and Daniel. Here's our addresses. <laughs> and feel free to email us as well. Any ideas you have for future episodes? Or uh, we are very willing to take requests now. Or anything, you know? You got something to contribute? Anything meaningful? At all about anything. doesn't have to be about Los Angeles. Just if you think about... Yeah. What yeah, do you think I about? Mean, yeah, what are you thinking about, America? I don't what care. Your, 
What triggers you? Yeah, what really gets you going? Who are Los you? Angeles? Welcome to LA Meekly After Dark. If I cut you, will you bleed? <laughs> Let's find out. LA Meekly. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. So that's been another episode. Episode 14, coincidentally, February 14th. Have a nice Valentine's Day, everybody. You're all of our Valentines. All of us. Not mine. I'm taken. This mic and me have something special. Don't send me a flower. I won't accept it. Have a nice Valentine's yes, Day. Please. Make a lot of love. Do a little dance. Get, get down. down. Some night. Just get down. Every night. Get all down right. every all right. night. Okay, we got to have a dance party really quick. Are you ready? Uh, no, no, no. Well, we got to finish this up. Then we'll do the okay, dance party. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll get the music set. I'll get it ready to go. I'll drop the beat. <laughs> Uh, all right, so that's been L.A. Meekly. Getting drunk at Moose on Frank since 2013. Yeah. Yeah. Dance party commencing. Yeah, you're good. Okay, that's good. Mm-hmm.